Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle that we can make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am joined by two distinguished gentlemen, Matt Welch, Michael Moynihan. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? It is good to be with you. Hold on. Like, like Moynihan gets fired and now I don't work for a place anymore? Is that what happens? There's like the imbalance? You don't work for the recent magazine (laughs) and the market. What are you talking about? What are you talking our, about? Recent magazine. No, no. Our other affiliations are of no consequence. I don't want to come on here every week and necessarily mention employers or the fact that you are a proud member of NAMBLA, Matt Welch. I don't yeah, think we have yeah. to talk about every week. Yeah. Yeah. I think Isn't he, that I think fair? The, I think he's the treasurer, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you actually collect the money, right? So you're actually yes. like, where do you think wow. I get these headbands from? I know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Diapers don't repurpose themselves. We're breaking up pedophile rings on this podcast, <laughs> including right. people who actually work on this podcast. Release the list. Um, oh, man. Release the list. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say that I was feeling great. And then I found out that David Crosby died. And uh, I had no change in my feelings. Yeah, I was going to say, you feel better? (laughs) No, I just, it's so funny that, you know, Matt was like, texted me with the best question ever. It was, said, did David Crosby ever write a good song? And I was like, not that I can think of. I got, so I I got a list here. Uh, So you tell me if any of these are good songs. These are the solo written songs by David Crosby. There's uh, Almost Cut My Hair. Uh, great, great one, but he I didn't. Don't know which That's the big, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, deja vu. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, I thought that was a Beyonce song. Uh, is, yeah, it's his cover of it. Uh, <laughs> Guinevere. You need to, You got to have a lot of Guinevere's written yes, there. I don't, uh, I don't know. Lady friend. <laughs> Lady friends. Yes, I did see an interview where he said his life was ruined by cocaine and the fact, the fact that he's obsessed with sex. Huh. I, was I, like, he's well, a fat I think fuck. it's probably because you're actually, you're just, you just weren't that talented. <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Uh, I kind of do. Um, but I don't know. It's a, it's this weird thing. I, so I, I do this cause, uh, uh, you know, rock is a dying, uh, art form. And so yes. people die all the time now. Like Jeff Beck died the other day, the yeah, legendary yeah, yeah. rock guitarist. who I also don't have any feelings about. And, yeah. uh, and so, uh, when people die, I tend to say, Hey, uh, you know, fill in the blank uh, music robot in my house that's spying on me. Shuffle songs by Dead Guy. Um, yeah. Right. And that can be an illuminating. Shuffle, shuffle songs by Dead Guy. Shuffle songs yeah. by Dead Guy. I did that yeah. tonight and I was like furiously texting Moynihan throughout because yeah, yeah. Camille, I'm nice. I, I don't let you know. Yeah. I don't know everything. what you're talking about. I don't know mm-hmm. any of these songs. Uh, I didn't, and nor does anyone listening know any of these songs either, no. because David Crosby <laughs> no. is a guy, he's a zealot of rock and roll who just happened to be in two of in the, birds, the yeah. more important bands, one of which was good, which the Birds, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is beloved, but not great. He did get fired from the Birds, by the way. I, he got fired. <laughs> he from got it. fired? What yeah, did he do? Yeah, yeah. Well, he just do? being, he's like notorious, he was, I'm oh, sorry, rest in peace, he was notoriously kind of a jerk, but. I think that Roger uh, McGuinn was just like, eh, you're not meshing. I think that was kind of it. But, but what were the big hits correct. that the birds that the birds had? 
eight, eight miles, miles high. high. Uh, That's the biggest one. Turn, turn, turn. A lot of turn, were, turn. You know, turn, turn, turn. But uh, it's in every shitty '60s movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Do everything. That's the every yeah. every season yeah. song. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah. Which David yeah, Crosby, I, I don't think had anything to do with. Wait a minute. No. That's that's rock. That's not rock. Folk rock. I mean, they did folk rock. So they rock. they got <laughs> a, a twelve string electric guitar and three part harmonies, West Coast sound, and then they hired like you know the the um whatchamacallit um backup band um uh that played for everybody i'm that's how much Who? i'm blanking on uh, moynihan but this which one this this tsn this headband is a brain injury obviously it's just by signal for brain Cry, fog. you mean crabby stills in that no i mean right? the birds everyone oh. on the west coast played with the same backup band that the beach boys put together and i'm just playing the wrecking buffalo, crew. A wrecking crew buffalo a wrecking crew, wrecking crew yeah. played all of all of uh <laughs> like they played the monkeys and they played the early birds and the birds got it's mad a great start to this podcast listen matt not remembering a band <laughs> 20 minutes brain fog is real but uh so no he was yeah. he was part of two beloved bands and so people have been pretending he's important ever since and he's just not huh. so ask ask the yeah. robot to play his songs and they are worse than what if you got like uh moynihan's ai chat bot and told yeah. him to uh, uh impersonate uh christopher cross um, well, you worse. said that about the thing, and so I did it, and I said, hey, Google, play David Crosby, and Google responded, why? Did he die? <laughs> and I was like, shit, I thought you knew everything. Apparently not. So this, um, is, this is like one of the, the, the not so well-known NSYNC or Backstreet Boy members like dying. That is essentially yeah, yeah. what you're telling me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's, like, that's useful. Because there was a, you had... Do you remember the uh, boy band in England? Our English listeners will remember Take That. Oh, yeah. Which uh, which included Robbie Williams. And when I was in England, I remember they were big, and I, I was at the airport, and I bought a Take Back, uh, Take That notebook, because that was really funny. And there was a guy in it who was kind of pudgy, and his name was Howard. I was like, I don't think this guy's going anywhere. <laughs> Robbie Williams was like handsome and like not, like doing stadiums for years. But I wanted to point out something about David Crosby that is um, not really about David Crosby. It's about Rolling Stone. And about, you know, rock uh, as a dying art form, Rolling Stone dying along with it uh, as a magazine. They interviewed uh, Crosby in 2020. Oh, God. And I just want to read you the questions. This is, these are the first five questions. Wait, when in, For, when in 2020? Uh, I don't. Let uh -oh. me look at the data. Jamil's got Jesus. George Floyd Dar on. <laughs> uh, uh, well, he's, he's, he's right. The first question is, how did you feel watching the George Floyd video? Oh. David Crosby. And he's like, I don't know, man. And, uh, and then the second question. Yeah. Second question to David Crosby, yeah. broken hippie. Uh, what concrete changes do you hope to see happen to police tactics? To David Crosby. David Crosby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, then there's something about uh, reelecting Trump. Uh, the fourth question is, I know you were supporting Mayor Pete at first and you were skeptical about Joe Biden. How do you feel now? Uh, fifth question. Do you think that Biden is rising to the moment? <laughs> like, you know what happened? The guy who came to interview him was like, dude, I've never heard any of this dude's solo yeah, songs. Yeah, I won. Just asking about <laughs> Pete Buttigieg. Either that or it was Jan Wenner. It's like one of the yeah. two. I think it was oh recently because he was kind of a jerk on Twitter. And recently, did you see that thing with a fan, like some young fan, like drew a picture of him? No. And like posted and added no. him. And he was like, this is horrible. It looks nothing like me. <laughs> That's good. And I was just like, dude, honestly? <laughs> so apparently yesterday, God responded. 
<laughs> I will point out yeah, that I think a thousand years from now, Matt Welch, that yeah. people will in the same way that we do um, before common era, because we were not allowed to say, you know, before Christ, after after that or whatever, it's going to be BGFDAGFD. That's going to be a thing. We'll mm-hmm. use before that David Crosby mark time. Before, no, George before- Floyd. Before guided by voices, after guided by voices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Before George Floyd died. Um, speaking of which, George Camille, died, that's how we'll mark I was, time. I, I have to say, I was pretty excited. Um, I'm excited for the fifth column too, because I, I know how yeah. generous you are as, as a person. <laughs> is that I was reading the newspaper, yeah, and I read something that you just made. It didn't mention you by name. It mentioned mm-hmm. you by race, mm-hmm. uh, and it said that you just made five million dollars. Because you live in Tiburon, right? Which is in San Francisco. Oh, wait. So no. hold on. You moved. Yeah, I lived, oh. I lived outside of San Francisco. So I wouldn't have qualified anyways. Yeah. So qual- qualified Mr. for what now? Mr. Moynihan is, Mr. Moynihan has mispronounced your name. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. What you deserve. So you take um, all those pills like David Crosby. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> is Mr. Moynihan <laughs> is referring to the California Reparations Task Force, which this week um, task released force. a report. Yeah. Explaining how they would go about designing a reparations plan to atone for the various crimes of San Francisco in particular. And this is separate and apart from California's own reparations task force, which is developing statewide recommendations. And this is the first detailed plan that includes some numbers from the San Francisco task force. Um, And the big thing that's been talked about is the fact that they suggested a $5 million payment for black San Francisco residents. Now, granted, like to qualify for the payments, you have to be at least 18 at the time that the proposals enacted. You have Why to not have, kids? You have they to have, experience racism? Well, that's just it. You have to be at least 18 and you have to have identified as black for the past decade. Two for two for government me. Records. <laughs> um, and also you have to prove that you were born in the city oh. between 1940 mm-hmm. and 1996. Might be a little um, and, and have resided in San Francisco for at least 13 years to be some how do they come up with 13 and there's one more there's one more condition and this is the the one that i think threw people for a for a loop um be a direct descendant of someone incarcerated during the war on drugs i'm sorry those are the things that you have to be yeah wait what that's their criteria that's what they did i thought reparations was for slavery it 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 is but of course in california didn't ever have slavery um although this is something they also address um because they say that they you know did things that were generally beneficial to slavers in some roundabout ways, but also perpetrated various other crimes like redlining. But again, this is not about those things. It's not as though, and I think we've talked about this in the past, a policy of redlining, which precluded people from making loans with respect to homes that are being purchased in particular areas, like a federally backed loan, would have impacted anyone who happened to be a homeowner in a particular area. Even if you were, say, a white landlord in a black neighborhood, that would have been bad for you in general, but you would not be due any sort of compensation under this plan, which is at least one important reason why a policy like this and really most reparation schemes that are designed around race are probably unconstitutional. But that, I suppose that's neither here nor there since almost no one in the country supports this garbage and San Francisco is going broke. I mean, it was like a, mm-hmm. it was a couple of months ago. 
that Mayor Breed had to come out and say, yeah, we ain't got a lot of money. And this is about a year removed from them having these extraordinary surpluses um, because of COVID um, and the mass exodus from San Francisco, and particularly people no longer having commercial offices in San Francisco. They find themselves in a huge cash crunch. Um, and they can't afford this nonsensical plan. Um, I don't expect them to do anything. It's amazing because we'll it's see. the sort of cherry on the top of the nonsense, right? Because it's the yeah. nonsense that created the fiscal crisis in the first place. The nonsense policies that create a situation that, you know, devolves into a nightmare that San Francisco has become. And then at the end of this, you're like, we have no money. Everyone's leaving. There's just rampant crime everywhere. And by the way, we we need about four hundred million dollars, maybe more, to uh, probably a lot more, right? I don't because I don't know how many people qualify under those. Do they give some numbers as to who qualifies under they, that? They really they really haven't. No one has quite figured this out, and it, yeah. it is hard to say. I heard there was like forty thousand people who are black in San Francisco, but it's Wait, not so clear did, how many would qualify under those criteria. This is paid for by taxpayer money. So does that mean presumably that yes. does that mean that black taxpayers can then get a write off the next round because they shouldn't be contributing to this fund, right? It'd be very odd that black taxpayers are paying for reparations if they didn't have somebody who was caught up in the drug war, right? It seems odd. Yeah, I I suspect that's probably not under consideration. This is the problem with all of these schemes. There is a, a material no injury, sense. a material injury to people who happen to have never participated in any of these bad things. Um, and also just unfortunate for them happen to not be black and are therefore obliged to give other people their money via the government. This is kind of a fucked up situation. I wonder if anyone ever tries to racist. quantify how bad this is um, for race relations. I mean, sure. and it's a thing that we don't say anymore because we don't even talk in those terms because everything is poisoned. And mm -hmm. presumably anybody who is quote unquote white or quote unquote black is living in this reality that has been constructed for them by people who write um, hot takes for a living. And they tell you what it's like to live a certain way. And if you, Camille, say, well, it's not like that for me, they say, well, you're just ignoring it. You're just uh, under the, the the spell and you've been hypnotized by white supremacy. They create this or, reality. Or so this an, is... a grifter. I mean, those are the only yeah, two yeah, options. Yeah, of me. course. Of course. <laughs> and those are definitely not a grifter, like people who are demanding $5 million for the government for God knows what reason. <laughs> that's not grifting. <laughs> I think that's straight up theft, but I'm not sure. But no, the thing is, is that you're not allowed to talk about this in the sense that like, you know, if this has a, a kind of knock-on effect for race relations, so what? Mm -hmm. a that's, that's their problem. But in every other public policy decision, you do take these things into consideration. One would kind assume of, yeah. that you take these things into consideration. One, one or should. at least it would be discussed. Yeah. I, I, it, it's usually, I should say it's usually not taken into consideration. Yes. But these things <laughs> would not be out of bounds to discuss. Like when you're saying we need to lock down the population for eight years, mm -hmm. what would be the social consequences of that would be something that you would talk about. Whereas in this kind of situation, this is not, I mean, it's, it's one of the, the, it's down there and low on the list of objections. Um, but one that should probably be talked about a little more because you want to talk about resentment. I see resentment now in ways that I never saw it before from people I would never expect it from. And that are, that's things from people saying, you know, my kid can't get into this school because of their identity. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not what the people on the task force would think it was. 
I love task force, by the way. It's, it, it's like the, the fast carrier task force that, you know, the Navy task force in World War II. It's slightly different. You remember when, when task forces were so, supposed to be to, to complete tasks? Like, yes. <laughs> we got this thing we need to get this, done. Here's, let's get some yeah. people to organize us so we get the thing done. As opposed well, it to, is. It's to further destroy the, the economy of San Francisco. That's <laughs> true. That's well, this, in, this, in this particular case, they had two years to come up with a plan that they could recommend, which can be formally ignored <laughs> or informally Camille, if ignored. you were born in San Francisco between those years, would you qualify for this? If I was born between those years? Yeah, yeah. That's no, I wouldn't because I don't, I don't identify in this way and government documents. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't qualify. Oh, but if you showed up for the to the five million dollar check signing and you were like, "Give me," they'd be like, "All right, sure." Right? I doubt it. You, could. I doubt it. A lot of the reparation schemes currently under consideration, I wouldn't qualify for anyways. So it's, pr- it's as perhaps a, as worth a, admitting that um, because I'm a first generation American and my ancestors were not enslaved in the Americas that I know of. It's certainly possible that someone was and then left and went to Jamaica or something. But, but the beautiful house that you live in, the beautiful uh, family you have, all yeah. the things that I see behind you in this um, screen, mm-hmm. these wonderful art prints. Dads. And, you know, this yeah. has been very hard for you to acquire this stuff. I do have several despite- $5,000 basketballs behind me because they're have signed that by a lot of Yeah, don't tell people because then, yeah. Th- just we also just have tell them it's Danny Ainge who signed them. <laughs> what you think all the guns is for? <laughs> don't try it's to a, come over It's here. a Kevin McHale ball and a Muggsy Bogues <laughs> ball. Just don't even bother breaking. Those are worth something too. They're worth something. A little something. Yeah. But all of that, despite all of that, and despite the yeah. fact that you're um, first generation, every day you walk outside. Mm-hmm. You walk... It's like very hard for me to try to do this with straight face. You're walking into a nightmare that yeah. was a legacy of America's horrible past. Yeah, that you have to just breathe in every time you you go out into the open air, which is just suffused with you know hatred and bias. And so you should be uh, eligible, right? Well, yes, by the standards of the people who are authoring these plans, I certainly ought to qualify because I've been subjected to all of these things, and in fact. To the extent I don't believe it for whatever reason, it can only be because of the the white supremacy that's been invested in me by the society yeah. against my will. That's the reason yeah. I can't recognize it. But th- they've <laughs> developed so many of these reports. I've this been is- hypnotized. <laughs> they developed so many of these reports. This is, by my count, the third report that has been issued by this particular commission. Who um, are detailing these the various ways jobs? in which things are bad? Well, it's funny. There's there's actually um, some detail in one of the reports about who these people are and the criteria. Someone was a life coach. Yeah, the criteria for establishing the board and the seats. They have to be filled by people with particular kinds of life experience. So, an individual who is incarcerated has to be in seat five. Who has been incarcerated? I should say, not currently incarcerated. Although they do probably they put should have any, a seat for that too. Do they put but, any limits on that? Like, if you're a murderer, is that no, like, that's too far? No, they don't say. They don't say. They don't say. That's probably a good thing. Um, one has to be an individual who's 65 years of age or older. By the way, who isn't has OJ from San Francisco? African American community. Is isn't he? OJ from San Francisco? Did he? I don't know. Did he live there for from, ten or fifteen? I think years? he was born in San Francisco. OJ yeah. Simpson would qualify. <laughs> he should be on that seat. He, would he should be on that seat. He has unique. Oh, well, actually, the drug jail? war. No, the drug war is a thing. That's the rub. There. No, but he can be on the seat for the for for having been in jail. Yeah, yeah. he could have been That's on a, the seat. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure um, OJ could has met some people that were victims of the drug war. I'm sure OJ could figure it out. Yeah, it, and it's one of those things. I mean, there there are obviously 
awful, egregious things that have actually happened across time and space. It is almost certainly the case that some of those bad things, the redlining, et cetera, the state-sanctioned discrimination, have had material consequences that are still in effect in some way, shape, or form today. However difficult it is to determine what the, the actual consequence of that stuff is. But there is something materially different about the way that they, they're trying to do these reparation schemes. It's, it's generations removed in some cases from the initial injury. In this particular case, it's kind of like some sort of psychic trauma that is sort of a result of slavery, but not exactly culpability that's being attributed to people on account of their happening to live in San Francisco now. So now they're responsible for paying these bills. This is not like what they did for Japanese Americans who suffered internment and who in the 1980s did manage to get some sort of reparations. In that particular case, it was the $20,000 payment to surviving Japanese Americans who had endured internment. deserved it. It's a fundamentally different policy than a policy that says you, descendant of someone, on account of your race, are entitled to get X number of dollars, other people who perhaps suffered similar harms or some portion of the same kind of harm, they don't qualify. They need not apply. Would you be required with this historical, you know, this wide historical lens here, would you be required to pay more um, into the reparations fund if you were descended from people who sold people into slavery? They They don't say that. But, because but certainly, look, I mean, it would certainly this apply. is all about the people we don't know in our yeah. past who have nothing to do with us. Yeah, so yeah. if you're from West Africa and you may be part of a tribe, you know, three generations back who sold people into slavery, maybe that's maybe that's your cross to bear. Hereditary guilt, hereditary, hereditary injury. Guilt is, I don't, yeah, I don't see exactly. any reason why they shouldn't be collecting money from African tribes and taking it yes. and giving it to people who live in San Francisco today. Yeah, it only makes sense. I mean, no, pursuant <laughs> morality demands it. The Japanese question, I think they did also a limited one for Filipinos, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Um, um, uh, there is direct applicability. The idea that there are, are direct injuries out there. Did we run out of individuals who have been directly, measurably, materially impacted by evil policies that like no. at some point society is going to agree if it hasn't agreed already. Yeah. Shouldn't have done that. Right. Civil asset forfeiture is, is a a category there where you could just like take people's money without charging them with a crime because you don't like them driving around in a Cadillac or carrying $10,000 of cash in an airport. You just take it. Um, and they can, uh, at least until one day, hopefully in the not too distant future, when the Supreme court says, what the fuck this, we allowed this to happen. Stop it. Um, that's direct. And I would I guarantee you that it disproportionately impacts um, people who are at the very least poorer and probably from various disfavored or traditionally disfavored minorities. Go after that just fine. That's not a problem. There's a, actually a great example in California that I support, uh, which is Manhattan Beach, I believe it was, has famously this uh, broad beach. There was a terrible race riot there 100 years ago. Um, uh, I think a lynching, you know, sue me for the details. But um, at some point, a, a, a wealthy or middle class, uh, bl- upper middle class black family um, had their property near the beach just seized and taken um, after this horrible uh, uh, violence had occurred. And um, without really any kind of uh, uh, redress at all. Um, and so Gavin Newsom, a couple of years ago, said that was wrong. 
uh, we should pay the direct descendants of that family, or I think it was it was a state thing, um, uh, reparations. We, we're going to pay you for the land that we took because we took it. Yeah. And it was bullshit. It was racist that we took it. Uh, here's the land back. And they gave him the land back. And what happened, I think about a month ago, is the family said, cool, thank you for the land. We're selling it back to you. We're not going to develop yeah. it. Um, they sold it back to the We're going to pocket it, uh, the $15 million. And I could have some of the jurisdictions slightly wrong, but that's the basic story there. That is actually the model. There are direct injuries all around us that look terrible, including one that David Crosby sang about, right? The uh, the Little Pink House movie. He uh, recorded a song for Courtney and Ted Balaker's movie about uh, Suzette Kilo. She had her house taken by the city of New London for a redevelopment that never happened. And you can give a person money and for she that. she was further punished by David Crosby. By David Crosby writing another <laughs> bad song about it. Um, <laughs> and like, there should be direct redress for those people. So why don't we look at those things first? This Can gonna... I tell you why? Yeah, let's hear it. There's a real, this is okay. an obvious answer, and I'm sorry to be a jerk about it and just yeah. cut you off and say there is a reason why. Uh, because this is not about justice. It has literally nothing to do with justice. This has to do with the weaponization of history, of using history to constantly prove a point. I mean, much in the way that, you know, Rachel Maddow's podcast is not interested in getting to the truth about the things that happened in 1939 and 1940. It's the purpose is to say that we have had a a sort of subterranean fascist movement that's been trying to overthrow this the, the government of the United States for a very long time. And it helps to, you know, prove the point that you're making about contemporary politics. And that is essentially what all this is. I mean, because there are so many historical, I mean, I think this is an avalanche that you don't want to dislodge that, that one kind of boulder that's holding everything in place. And that just, everything starts coming down on you after that, because history is very ugly. History is very messy. Uh, and history is full of injustice. I mean, there's never a time in history that hasn't been clotted with injustice. It's a matter of how much <laughs> and, you know, how frequent. There's times when it's been calmer than others, yeah. but still always full of injustice. Now, if we spend all of our time going backwards and saying, who did what wrong and let's pay somebody for it, yeah. um, that's a, this, it's a messy business, right? I mean, the, the acknowledgments that, um, I mean, America's tried to do this without, without cash payments. And the reason is not because... America is cheap and is thinking about this in a, in a kind of what is my fiduciary, fiduciary responsibility to people who are nine generations, five generations, four generations down. It's just that they do understand the difficulty of actually, you know, figuring out who deserves what, who pays for it. Yeah. And if this causes an enormous amount of kind of social tumult, um, which it inevitably would. And if you keep going down the line there, so you start, you establish a national African-American History Museum, which by the way is a beautiful building and, and the mall in D.C. And I, when I, last I was down there, I, I couldn't go because it was, it was, um, it was right after it opened. It was like, I think you couldn't get tickets at the time, but it's, I want to go and I want to check it out, but it's a, it's a big, you know, significant thing. You know, we just passed the Martin Luther King holiday. It's not as if we're just sweeping everything under the rug. We've done um, a good job and a bad job, sometimes bad, sometimes good. But it's not as if, like, we've done nothing, so therefore our last uh, bit of redress here, we, we'll just give out some cash payments. This is a battle for, for the future that is waged through the past. And that's what the 1619 Project is. That's what this is. No one gives a crap about the truth. That's why, you know, when you have people with Asada Taught Me t-shirts on, with, you know, you know, Panther posters in their house, they don't want to know what really happened. It's not really about history. 
It's about the present. And it's about how you can feel about the present, you know, through these kind of totemic people of the past. And the truth is kind of the, is, it's not even a casualty. It's just not even considered. Yeah. The, the Manhattan Beach story um, you mentioned, Matt, is actually pretty interesting. The family had actually filed suit at the time because of this, this takings saying that it was, it was wrong and they were pursuing $120,000. Um, what was that, Camille? Like 1920 something? 1924. Your... In 1924, yeah. the city, which by that time was called Manhattan Beach, condemned the Bruce's land and other adjacent homes owned by black residents using eminent domain. Of course, eminent domain. Of right? course. Um, and the two um, after, scumbags and racists, yeah. After years of litigation, the Bruce's who had sought $120,000 were given $14,000. And while a judge said that they had the right to move back to the Manhattan Beach, um, to Manhattan Beach, they couldn't afford anything after they had lost everything. And they, they had like a beach resort that they had set up. It was a, yeah. a business. It was an actual business there that was devastated by this unjustified takings um, and the, the highway that never materialized. Um, there. Um, so wait, yeah. is that oh, right? Is that was it? It was kind of a Robert Moses thing. There was that was the attempt was to was to take their property to put a highway in or put some quote unquote public works. Uh, that's that's know, my understanding. Good. That's my understanding. Yeah. Um, and, and and weirdly, it never materialized. I, people are, are always shocked to think that the government can use these things like um, after the ridiculous Kilo decision, which they did before, and and of course after. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the the good, they would never ever use it for evil. They would never use it for like the basest, most racist instincts, which they have and they could do in the future. Too. Mm -hmm. What's so, really yeah. uh, what's really interesting, and this came out uh, during the Kilo thing. Who was one of the leading voices saying that is an unjust decision? Eminent domain sucks. Maxine Waters, and why is that? Mm -hmm. The Southern California history, because uh, speaking of highways that were made or not made, uh, the 105 freeway uh, very famously um, just ripped through kind of Compton-Watts area, traditional black neighborhoods in uh, South Central Los Angeles. And um, uh, and as the Robert Moses, you know, does very close to where I'm sitting, uh, the way that it's sort of isolated Red Hook, just kind of devastated the the communities that it went, went through as and, you know, one of the great founding horror stories of L.A. is the creation of Dodger Stadium. At Chavez Ravine, which dislodged three entire um, working lower middle class uh, Mexican communities in the hillsides of Los Angeles by giving them promises that they're going to rehouse them, which they didn't. I mean, it's really it is an absolute crime scene. And it's always yeah. been a left wing value in Southern California. And this predates the left being dominant there. It's back when it was still giving the world Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon um, that eminent domain sucks because it's going to be used disproportionately against the poor by rich people to get what they want. Um, and that's true. Uh, that is always I think that's true. An, I think that's an important point. And I don't know if it's true. So I'm just floating this. And that's the purpose of some this podcast sometimes. So don't get on me and say, well, that's not true. You don't know what you're talking about. And speaking it of might, not true, it wasn't a highway. They, they were building a park. That was the park. Yeah. Oh, great. Goal. A park. It's a weird yeah. place to put a highway. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> even well, less just where, where all the where all the Negroes are that they didn't want anymore. Well, so. I wonder how much of this is about race and how much of it is about class and poverty. Because when you look at something like Chavez Ravine, which where, where the Dodger Stadium came, it's like these are Mexican communities, Mexican American communities, and these are people who at that point had no political power, none. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, if you go to white neighborhoods in certain places in New York. The organized political power, and of course, this is because of, you know, this is when I sound like a big lefty. 
is because of, you know, what we would then now call structural racism. This is actually, there's a reason for this, that people don't have power and some people do. But you don't screw with, you know, the Balkan community, the Irish community, because there's ward politics in which they have some measure of power. Mm -hmm. And it's not as if you're like, I just need to get rid of these people because of the color of your skin. I'm sure there's elements of that. And again, this is mere speculation. Don't get mad at me for this if I'm wrong. But it strikes me that a lot of these things and some examples that I've seen and read a lot about, it is just like you don't, there's no organized opposition that you can, that you can mount. And so you are going to be the victims of this. Um, and if you had some organized opposition, this probably wouldn't happen. I went on uh, a bus tour of of south la uh south of uh, the usc area we used to call it south central it's been rebranded after the riots um uh and with the uprising matt the uprising with bernard <laughs> parks the former la uh, city uh, police chief uh who had become a city council member for that part of the city this is in 2006 or 7 when i was at the la times we took a three-hour bus tour um through his district and it was fascinating and i ended up writing a little bit about it and i'm going to revisit it i think for reason pretty soon because L.A. at the time was undergoing what was routinely described as the biggest public works project in America west of the Big Dig. And just by saying the Big Dig, I think Michael just starts shuddering involuntarily. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. really one of the worst. No, the Irish made out quite well. In the <laughs> that's the problem. They should never make out well. That's a bad that's a bad sign. Bad indicator. Um, so what happened was that the L.A. Uh, Unified School District basically hadn't built a school in like 20 years or 25 years, there was overcrowding. This is back when California was taking on population and had been forever. And L.A. had been taking on population forever, been growing um, at four times the rate as the rest of the country, which has not been the case anymore. But this is in the, uh, the 90s. And this is still we have memories. This is the entire life that we've lived up to this point. There's overcrowding in the schools. We can't build anything anymore. And so the state, the city, everybody within uh, any shouting distance of government started passing what eventually became $30 billion worth of bond measures to build schools, right? Everyone's going to vote because California has a very loose uh, kind of uh, proposition and uh, bond measure things at the ballot box. Um, who's going to vote against kids? We need bigger classrooms. We got to, you know, relieve overcrowding. So they went on this building spree. This building spree occasioned the absolute raisings of entire neighborhoods. And I would go and visit them. So on this Bernard Parks thing, um, it was shocking. It was, you know, California is, tends to be a, a flat, horizontal uh, grid of uh, very rectangular neighborhoods. Just imagine a place where you would normally see, you know, those I individual skinny palm trees and little bungalows of maybe 100 houses. Boom, gone, bulldozed. Bulldozed with zero. I mean, zero unless it was me or someone writing about this in the L.A. Times. No one talking about it in the press. It's not an issue. They put up and they did this uh, near where I lived in Silver Lake displaced a bunch of Filipinos uh, who bought, you know, in 1940 um, for a school. And they did all of this right at the point when LAUSD enrollment went from whatever it was back at the time, let's say it was 800,000 to around 400,000 today. Like it cratered afterwards. They built, they, they bulldozed everything. No one raised a stink except for weirdo libertarians. Um, and right at the moment now where all of those buildings stand empty, they might have a, a the capacity of, of like a one third in these places. And they're taken up largely by charter schools. It is one of the biggest kind of crimes out there. And because the political culture of the place changed, it changed against the notion 
of misusing eminent domain. And it became a democratic monoculture. And who's going to be against building schools for the kids? No one gave a shit. Thousands, thousands of people got displaced. They raised neighborhoods in order to educate children that weren't there. It's an amazing thing. No one's talked about it. Uh, but uh, I mean, I mean, even if they were there, they wouldn't have educated them. There's also that. <laughs> so anyway, but um, uh, we should talk about other things as well. We we hit the debt limit, and there's some interesting DEI dramas playing out. Um, but I just got back from Chicago, and did you know that Mayor Lightfoot is polling fourth in that race? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, no, I did yeah. not know that. She's in bad, she's in bad shape. Yeah. And she's running against. She's like uh, polling fairly like behind 50, like members of Wilco. People. I mean, she's like doing <laughs> like literally. She's the worst mayor in the history of Chicago. I it's mean, Chicago's so had a lot of bad mayors. Yeah, a lot of it, bad mayors. And this, and and I, it's funny because when I got there, we landed at at O'Hare, and we were getting ready to to get out of the airport. And I'm traveling with Tracy and the two kids, so this was the first time doing that. And uh, it takes it it takes a lot. It's different. It takes a village. Um, <laughs> But I was I was shocked to hear over the loudspeaker Mayor Lightfoot's voice and this announcement, the protracted announcement about how wonderful it is to be in Chicago, how delighted oh. she is to welcome me to Chicago mm-hmm. and and talking about the beaches in Chicago and all kinds of great things about beaches. Chicago. Now they're in the in the lake uh, in Chicago. Uh, which know, is that's not really what you have to worry about for the most part. <laughs> um, I left the Citizen app yeah. on. You're in the middle of the country. And I deal get, with it. Yeah. I get all of these random alerts. Um, I think one of them was like a hail of gunfire where a guy got murdered in the morning during rush hour mm. at the bus stop, a woman who was wielding a knife somewhere nearby. Um, sharks are not the thing that most people are worried about, uh, in Chicago, thankfully, but there are other concerns and yeah, Mayor Lightfoot, perhaps not long for this world, um, as a mayor anyways. Um, and that's probably a good thing. So good luck, Chicago. Hope you manage to get rid of her. I do, I do um, love that town, and I, I appreciate the weird combination yeah, of like yeah. urban vibe and midwestern sensibilities, where strangers like still say what's up to you on the street, but you have most of the conveniences of being in a major American city. So, I got this. I, I'm trying to find it. I got the um, citizen alert. I was, I was going to pick up Levy at school, uh-huh. and I was stuck in traffic um, because. Uh, this city is full of idiots who just, um, and to our NYPD listeners, by the way, can you just do something about the double parking? Can you just like blow the cars up? Like put like Semtex on it and they just, <laughs> just blow them up. <laughs> it's easier to get around a car on fire than it is fucking stopped on Atlantic <laughs> Avenue. Not Atlantic Avenue, on Fulton. But it's really drives me crazy, by the way, because there's like, and by the way, this is a total aside, but there's a guy on Twitter who I think like, People like love this guy, and I if I ever saw him, I'd punch him in the face. It, this guy who goes around um, like shaming people who cover up their license plates um, for the for the cameras. There's there's a, a, a hundred thousand speed cameras and red light cameras in the city, yeah. so you can put things over the plate. Yeah, you obscure one number, but and this guy goes around and he's like this Brooklyn like fifty year old guy who looks like he just got fired from the New York Review of Books. And he goes around with like his camera, like filming himself. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm taking off your, your like. It's like, oh, thanks for helping the government out. I appreciate them robbing people, and you know, especially like poor people. That's who get hit with this stuff. So th- this guy, of course, doesn't go around to people who are double parked and creating absolute traffic nightmares because the people who are double parked would probably murder him. Mm. So finding cars that are parked is a different story. 
But I was in a traffic jam and it was like this, this citizen was in Crown Heights. This citizen thing po- uh, popped up and it was right next to the C train stop. And it was like a gang of youth slashed somebody in the face on C train. And I was like, is this happening right now? And it's like, oh, I forget when I go out to East Egg that I have, because you know that yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Nothing happens out yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. What does like, the, what is the know, citizen alert show on East Egg? Nothing. Cat and tree. <laughs> cat and tree. Another cat and tree. Co- 50 cops in like a, a, a armored Humvee. Douche bro <laughs> show up <laughs> at the horse show again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Horse and horse slightly annoyed at the horse show. Like it's not even, it's just a little off. Something a little off about it. But the police are investigating. But I love it. The fact that I just I come back to the city. And by the way, I'm going to give you the in incentive to either unsubscribe. Mm to our uh, uh, Substack or to subscribe. I think this is, if you exist, you'll unsubscribe. Because next time, I'm going to tell you... (laughs) Oh, God. I'm going to tell you that when I came into the city last night, I came in to see... This is under duress. I did this under duress, but I agreed because I'm a good person. I went and I saw Phantom of the Opera. Oh, that's great. I'm going to review it. Yeah. I'm going to review it. You're going to review Phantom? I'm going to review it... yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna verbally review oh. on the next on the next Substack. So you subscribe now, okay? And you will get my detailed review. And the only thing I'll tell you about it is this: I didn't want to go. I really didn't want to go. But um, and, you loved it. But I did. But I did. No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. I don't know if I loved it because here's the thing: <laughs> there was a there was kind of like a like a Swedish fish type thing, a gummy type product. Yeah. Uh, that I thought maybe this will make it better. Oh no, <laughs> no, no! Um, and there was an intermission, uh-huh. and so the second one that I had with me as a backup was then consumed at the intermission. And by the end of it, I was like, "What the fuck is happening?" And I don't even know if I liked it. But I, um, but the writer of that play, his yes. daughter is uh, Imogen. I would, I would say Imogen is a friend. Yeah. yeah. She's uh, she's. Yeah, I think I kind of freaked her out. A, she's quite beautiful. I freaked her out a little bit because I, I think I'm on yeah. record as as believing Phantom of the Opera is the greatest musical ever made. I love it. Oh wow! I've seen it. Wow, does a dozen times. I didn't know how least. '80s it was. There's like an '80s, like the '80s. It reminded me of the um, yeah. Take yeah. I think it's a, me. No, no, no. It actually <laughs> it reminded me of like a theme song of um. Of uh, you know what is this the 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 one in Scarface? Do you know that song? Like take it to the limit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like you know guitar solos, and I was like, when the fuck was Glenn this written? Eighty six. I guess that makes sense. But that's all I'll say. But you yeah, know, I just that's a weird digression. No, I love Phantom. But uh, it, you, it's but, yeah, always it's, it's always the right time to talk about Phantom. I mean, well, you know, it's closing. Which I think is kind of a ripoff because it's closing in February after 36 years yeah. uninterrupted. Now they're finally closing at the Majestic Theater. I didn't know that. And uh, the, when they announced that, the sales in December yeah. were the highest ever yeah, yeah. over 36 I'm years. I'm going back. And so then they, so then they, they extended it to April. It's like, no, no, that's, no, that's like, you can't, you're buying the home run ball. I'm fine with it. Right? <laughs> you can't keep going. The 70th home run ball. They're going to add three more games. Yeah. And then there's the 71st. When, the what we should when actually do is a know? competition. Like, go to see Phantom with Camille. Um, you just have to. Will you sing all the songs? Will I sing all the songs? No. It, while we're sitting there in the theater? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I mean, have you seen from the my seat? Sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, what we need, what we really need to do is before it closes, like just get them to put me in the role of the Phantom for one night only. I mean, oh, that'd would be great. Out. It'd be great because I could do the whole thing. Yeah, Black I Phantom. I know all of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened before. Uh, oh, of course. Yeah, I just, of course. Quick, quick question. Point of order, as they say. The Christine. Brits, you, you, I got my top hat Christine. on. Oh, she's black in the one that I saw. Christine's black. Yeah. Oh, when yes, did this is. podcast mm-hmm. become gay? <laughs> um, the second I said, yes, I'll join you guys. <laughs> sure. Not you've always been. Wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. The, but, but I'll say this final thing is that I, was, well, I took the subway yeah. home because it was, you know, it's like... The train is right next to the theater. It's also hard to drive when you're flying on stupid gummy medication. I think I think I might have been. I think I might have had my medication (laughs) dosage a little off, and so that. But the whole ride, I was inventing my own Phantom of the Opera songs. Oh no! And so I will share some of those with you if you subscribe. Oh dear Um, God! And by the way, I would just put it this way: when I asked, when I said something, yeah. On the way home, it was like that's not what happened in the in the play. I'm like, really? I thought the chandelier dropped on the dude and he got his face all fucked up. Like, no, that's no. not what happened. I was like, all right, no, not exactly. Okay, okay. Oh man, uh, are you gonna, are you going to be in the city for uh, Sunday, uh, Moynihan? Because I am going uh, to a um, a um, uh, I don't know what time I'll be back, but I'm going to uh, Levy has a meet in Florida. Oh, okay. So, right. so yeah, why are, are you going to MJ? No, I'm not. I did We're go to a, I did go to a, a production, which I mentioned uh, in the weekend links. But uh, no, I'm. Uh, uh, I was just in terms of what production. Oh, uh, Gilgamesh. You should read the website that we put out sometimes. It's, uh, Kinky boots. I don't want to. I don't want to know what you're fucking doing. It's like it's, it's like a faithful, my day. a faithful listener and subscriber, Seth Bockley, put on this incredible uh, uh, production at the uh, La Mama uh, Theater. Um, out of Toronto, they've been working on for four years. Called uh, 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 Gilgamesh and the I don't the the Wild Boy King or something. I'm screwing up the title. This is in New York. This yeah. Is, um, he, did you he, did you go to Toronto to see? He this? floated he floated us tickets, and it's one of the greatest things I've seen. Um, uh, really, absolutely oh, cool. fantastic. All right, so everybody should go okay. see that. Uh, what, what theater was that? It was at the La Mama Theater in the in the village. Um, uh, like oh, an yeah, experimental in, theater, like yeah, a Willem yeah, Dafoe yeah, yeah. type place. It's. It's yeah, yeah. as we're recording this, they're doing their final two shows, so you're not going to be able to see ah, it. Shit. But okay. they're gonna they're gonna do it in Toronto and and elsewhere. But uh, it was, uh, tremendous. Saw Chris Hayes there, as a matter of fact, who uh, wow. shared my enthusiasm and also did saw. Did you see him? I, he, he was yeah, he was he was checking out the play. Uh, yeah, because he's friends. He went to uh, now just divulging too much. I don't know where this episode went off the rails. Uh, but he uh, le- w- went to school with Seth, our faithful listener. Way back in the day, oh, so wow. it was a great day. And David Milch, did you ask Chris if we can borrow some money? <laughs> <laughs> no, guy makes more, that guy makes more than Stephen Crowder. No, oh. <laughs> Segway. Return to Segway. the deal down. Does Se- Stephen Crowdy, Crowder make the uh, make uh, all that much money, Camille? You've studied the financials over the last. Well, like, no, I haven't. Minutes. I haven't studied the financials. I, I was just looking yeah. at the terms of the deal. So if. Mm-hmm. If you're not in the know, there is a bit of a tiff between Ben Shapiro, I guess Daily Wire Media, because they're a whole thing now, and yeah. Stephen Crowder, who recently left the blaze and is out on his own, but was fielding pitches from various conservative media outlets. Although the only one we know anything about is the Daily Wire, who apparently extended him an offer, which initially it was reported was a $10 million deal, and it had what Mr. Crowder seemed to believe were very onerous 
terms, deceitful terms, perhaps, terms that betrayed the conservative values that he thought that people like the Daily Wire actually stood for. And he didn't name them by name. What did they, were their game when he was giving? <laughs> When he was <laughs> when he was offering his his commentary on this deal, it was at the time it was his hilarious kind of un, unnamed conservative media outlet who, but, but by his account early on, it was a situation where they said, "Fine, we'll give you X million dollars, but if during the term of this agreement you are deplatformed by YouTube or Facebook." or um, any other media outlet that you are currently on and generating revenue from, we're going to modify the, the deal and you will receive X percent I mean, less money sense. because you are yeah, no longer I mean, on those platforms. And for Mr. Crowder, this was an outrage. This was essentially the publication saying that they are going to do the dirty work of the tech platforms who are busily doing all kinds of unfair censorship of the the conservative media operations. So if YouTube has a particular policy, the Daily Wire is going to punish you because you've been, say, demonetized because you said the truth and now they won't pay you quite as much. But the defense that Daily Wire offered is a completely credible one. We're paying you money based on your ability to generate money. And if YouTube revenue is part of the money that you're generating and you can no longer generate it, there's going to be some sort of commensurate reduction of your compensation. Not all of it, but a commensurate reduction based on the fact that you're no longer generating money from here and there. Their argument seemed to be that Mr. Crowder wanted a lot of money. And the way that they were able to get to this total was to use this kind of uh, math. But the dispute is now, it's volleyed back and forth. There was a reply from um, ben Shapiro's team. And now there's been another reply from Mr. Crowder, who apparently recorded the phone conversation that he had with them negotiating things and has played segments of the call selectively what is wrong with these people? Um, for like, the honestly, public. What is wrong with these which, people? And it's very Why strange. It's very strange. I, as I'm watching this as an outside, outside some, independent observer, out like I'll tell you that it, it certainly doesn't look like the Daily Caller wants to be involved in this. Steven seems very daily wire, daily wire. It's hard. All these, I mean, come on, seriously, yeah, yeah. daily wire. They're, they're all doing calling. things all day. Um, yeah. But it does not seem like Mr. Crowder is at all displeased with the way this is playing out. I mean, he kind of puts on a bit of a show, but if you didn't like the deal that they sent you, you could have negotiated the deal in private. It's bizarre <laughs> to get contracts no, That's a level of confidence you. for somebody who's unbelievably Weird. unfunny. And, um, you should hear what comedians say about him, which I've been pri I've been privy to a couple of times. A long time ago, when um, there were a lot of comics on Red Eye, and uh, they held him in, in rather low esteem because um, <laughs> he identifies as like a comic. I don't know. It's kind of like Spalding Gray. He's like a comic, not like monologuist or something, but he's not a comedian. But uh, I don't honestly don't understand the um, the appeal. But I wonder if there's certain amount of that uh, people in the conservative firmament get used to the kind of conservative welfare state model mm. that you just do things and people pay for it. You know, there's going to be some benefactor somewhere. And then when somebody says, no, no like we're going to pay you this, but this is what you have to earn. And if you lose that earning power for whatever reason, we're going to have to slack. We can't pay you that. And it's like, no, no. I mean, you're literally getting mad at somebody for saying this is how the market works. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to react to to the market. Like, it's not saying we approve of it or anything. It's like, you know, I don't, 
I don't approve of, you know, the government giving me speeding tickets all the time, but I'm going to be aware of that I'm going to have to pay them if I'm going 100 miles an hour, which I think is the way things should be. But it's not the way things are. Mm-hmm. And you can't fight the power everywhere when you're trying to do business. And it's just a weird, I mean, the, the only thing that surprised me about that was the number. I mean, $50 million over four years for, for that? Fucking kidding me? I think that I mean, Steven Crowder should be put on the slow boat to Mauritius and we should never hear from him again. And I find myself a little bit sympathetic to him in this case. Not hmm. that he's airing dirty laundry and playing uh, tapes and basically all of his behavior of it is terrible. The people, um, the people one he thing, says were his friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super unsurprising I didn't for anyone have who's to been do in this, it, he says. <laughs> in a room with Steven Crowder, which Camille and I were at the foundation of the independence, uh, the story I might uh, table a little bit. Um, but uh, in that, he says, as part of this, I thought we were creating new media to withstand the excesses and the deplatformability of big tech. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a great noble goal. Um, uh, and not for $15 million. It's not, it's not <laughs> worth $50 million. No, uh, if you you got to have YouTube involved for that. If you, if you can convince someone to give you $50 million and if you could build a $50 million mousetrap to uh, make your rumble really work. I really like that. Like the, the two biggest guys on rumble right now are Glenn Greenwald and Steven Crowder. As far as I can tell, um, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a platform shooting up with a rocket. Um, and I say that with, a, with some, uh, measured affection for Glenn at least. Um, but, uh, I like the idea of being able to build and withstand. I mean, one of the things that we've seen with the Twitter files thing, and then today with, the uh, the, uh, Facebook files, uh, uh, uh edition by Rob, a little cheekily named by Robbie Suave over reason, um, but just kind of basically extending the same thing. Unsurprisingly, the government tried to pressure uh, and is probably still trying to pressure uh, Facebook or whatever it's called these days. Um, to But that's not a violation of free speech, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, no, it, it, tell, it tells us that uh, that there is this sort of choke point. Anyone who's had to deal with YouTube, and we haven't, as other people have pointed out to us, we don't really do a, a fifth column business on YouTube. Um, but YouTube changes its monetization things at the drop of a hat. And, uh, and that really affects the livelihoods of people who, who put things there. So I get it. And I have respect for those who are building those things, but like build it. Don't bitch that not everyone is building it at the same time. And also that not everyone is willing to pay $50 for you to sit and say, you know, prove me wrong at, uh, at Wesleyan. Uh, sitting at a table and talking some anti-feminist or anti-trans bullshit like he does. I mean, I know, by the way, just a broader point on this. Um, I know that maybe you don't want to talk about this, Matt, but because, you know, Drew Carey is a reason trustee and, you know, you know him. Um, I've met him only once. Um, thought he was an unbelievably nice and smart and interesting guy. But I just did want to respond to him because he did respond to reason um, with a rather punchy little tweet um that said um which by the way has two likes in two hours and the guy has half a million followers so maybe this maybe he wasn't making the best case might be blacklisted but uh in we don't know in response to this uh to this yeah maybe he's being shadow banned um in response to this thing that robbie suave dropped about facebook um working in concert or meta working in concert with um the cdc is this which i think is um a straw man Nobody's free speech rights are taken away because Meta won't let them post harmful bullshit on Facebook. Jesus fucking Christ. 
Um, that's an exasperated tweet, but a couple of things about it is that no one says anything in that piece or what Robbie wrote about free speech rights. Mm-hmm. It's not about rights. It's about it's about speech in general. Speech being suppressed on a very, very large platform where you have access to very, very, very many people um, is a suppression of speech. It's not a rights issue. That's I, I agree, but that's the wrong way of framing it. And to say that is harmful bullshit on Facebook. Um, okay, well, two things about that. Number one, I would say that you're, you should be a little more skeptical when it's the government who is intervening with a private business and telling them what is harmful and what should and should not be published. That's always a bad thing. It's ne- it never ends well. But it's also something that we've uh, beaten to death, so I won't spend too much time on it. But, you know, what is harmful bullshit? And what was harmful bullshit then is that harmful bullshit now, mm-hmm. because it's not as if it's something that, you know, everybody on earth agrees with except for five flat earthers. This is not flat earther stuff, I presume, right? I didn't read the details of what, what you know, Meta was blocking. But yeah, we did, no one's free speech rights were taken away. But if there's a collusion between the government and a very, very big corporation, that, you know, is, you know, this choke point for inf- information, particularly for like your parents um, in saying that please do not post or allow this stuff to be posted, um, says the government. It's just not a great feeling right there. Rand, you can't say it's something illegal, but it's but it's it's a bad feeling. Rand Paul was booted off of YouTube um, a year and a half ago. I forget the exact details um, by saying that cloth masks are ineffective at stopping the spread of COVID. He was kicked off of YouTube. <laughs> his free speech rights weren't taken away, but Correct. that was a definitely an attack on his speech. For yes, sure. and it was and, a huge platform. And as has been pointed out in Robbie's piece in the Twitter files, the the first or the second one by Barry Weiss, and one of them by I think Michael Schellenberger, mm-hmm. um, the ones that are talking about what happened to Jay Bhattacharya, who is a Stanford University professor who wrote a pretty great piece for Tablet, uh, kind of detailing uh, what academic freedom applied looks like at stanford during covid and it's chilling it's it's a you know he couldn't do normal things that yes that people at universities especially stanford and especially just generally good universities should normally be able to do there's all this pressure being applied um in many cases twitter and other places were um uh encouraged to and agreed to either limit suppress or just kick off people who said things not because they weren't true, but because they went against what the CDC guidelines were at that moment. Um, that is the thing that should give us pause. It's not that Jay Bhattacharya couldn't express himself. He could. He absolutely can. Mm-hmm. He still does. Um, it's that this this thing that we thought was a space where people could talk to one another were, were like pulling the levers in ways that we didn't know about. They didn't disclose um, and doing so because of governmental pressure. There is a an analog that I haven't fully worked out, so I want to throw it to the to the class. Um, but it reminds me a lot of 2015, 2016 era. Um, this is after this is when Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton are running against each other for president. In December of 2015 is the San Bernardino Islamist mm-hmm. massacre. Um, and mm-hmm. both of them say in the period of about 48 hours, um, uh, Hillary Clinton's like, we have to, like, shut down this, that and the other. And then Donald Trump um uh, one up her surprisingly saying, we just got to shut down whole corners of the internet. And so everyone was outraged kind of at Donald Trump saying that, but the, both of those were semi popular sentiments at the time. Mm-hmm. It was like, Oh my God, these people are communicating. I remember Moynihan, you were 
actually watching all this like torture beheading porn video uh, on Facebook, uh, looking at ISIS videos and such at the time. Mm. And it's horrible. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote a piece for Newsweek about it. I wasn't just watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was my Islamist phase. One handed <laughs> Islamism. Um, <laughs> but uh, but there was this feeling for it. And um, and at the same around the same time, a reason actually to put us back in the story of it um, had had our um, uh, information about our commenter subpoenaed by the uh, U.S. Uh, attorney in the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, um, because someone made a, a, a joke about the sentencing judge behind Ross Ulbricht of uh, whatever the hell. I've already forgotten the name of yeah. that, too, because brain fog. Um, and uh, it's just like, oh, that person should be taken out to the wood chipper. And they're like, OK, we got to you have to reason. Give us all of the information about this person. Um, and which we refused to do. And then they slapped a big gag order on us, um, which thankfully Pope hat back when he liked reason, um, Ken white, <laughs> um, uh, managed to f- uh, see before it like it became fully applicable. But the point of all of that was we discovered in that process that under the guise of, well, we have to do something about Islamism and terrorism and the bad people doing the bad things. We discovered that there were takedown orders all the time by the feds, by cops, by Homeland Security onto the sort of soft underbelly of social media companies and telecommunications companies. And they would say, can you just give us this? Can you just give us that? And oh, by the way, you can't tell anybody about us. So it was different than the prior generation's attitudes about prior restraint, because that exists too. Remember, there's been several cases where you know, the CIA or the NSA or or just the White House has told the New York Times, please don't publish this bit of information mm-hmm. because it mm-hmm. jeopardizes ongoing um, uh, affairs. And the New York Times has a decision to make at that moment. Um, and sometimes it has made the decision to withhold information for a year, to sit on the story sure. for a year. And sometimes they a perfectly reasonable exchange, by the way, saying, please don't. Not please saying don't. You're not allowed to. Um, and that's yeah. the thing. The New York Times, because of the Pentagon Papers and other things beyond, they have a history of a way of thinking about this and a way of an adversarial relationship. What we discovered, Reason did, when we were on the target end of this and couldn't do anything about it, was that um, there was this sort of new avenue where all of these new companies had no relation, no such relationship, right? Like the NSA story and Edward Snowden is all about AT&T. Um, it's not about the New York Times. And so I'm saying that there might be an analog here right now with COVID, with CDC, mm-hmm. with whatever the public health says and the pressure that they put on um, with these companies that also do not have that traditional adversarial antagonistic written by law relationship. And then the added, added factor of a lot of the people who work for those companies agree with censoriousness. Mm-hmm. They agree mm-hmm. with basically what Drew Carey says in a couple of these tweets, which is like, my God. It's a pandemic. People are spreading information. We have to stop that. Um, and so why it's a very 9-11 response. Why would mm-hmm. it's a very 9-11 response, right? Am I am I mm-hmm. am I taking crazy pills or like is there an analogy there? I think another analog here, and I think this is one a word that people often use, but I think they misuse it. And this is for the Jay Bhattacharya thing. I think the the analogous situation that people don't quite get is, and you'll, again, you'll hear this used, but I don't think they get why that this is apt, is McCarthyism. And when you look at what Jay Bhattacharya says about being an academic at Stanford during that time, and I've heard him in interviews say, you know, colleagues wouldn't talk to him. He was not invited to things. He was basically cast out, right? 
and it's the views that he's being cast out for are actually his views, right? This is the thing that people understand about McCarthyism. At the end of McCarthyism, you have George C. Marshall, you have a lot of these Eisenhower, you guys are coddling communists and, you know, the drunken McCarthy, you know, flaming out in the most fantastic way. The earlier version of McCarthyism, a lot of the people, the people he's talking about are communists. They, they literally are. I mean, that's not, that is thing that people, people often miss is the response to it is a civil liberties nightmare. The response is horribly unfair. It doesn't matter what these people believe if they believe in communism. They should be allowed to do so. They should be allowed to teach in the New York City schools. They should be allowed to, you know, work in certain places in government. I mean, other places, they just have to have very, very serious background checks, which they didn't do, which is why people like, you know, Alger Hiss and, um, you know, Duncan White and these people got through. But the point was, is that they believed those things. A lot of these people really did believe those things. The reaction, though, was to hopefully cast them out from polite society within their own universe, right? That's what Red Channels was all about. That's what the Hollywood stuff was all about. It worked a little bit in Hollywood, not as much as people think it did. But at the end of the day, it's actually worse for people like Jay Bhattacharya. Because at the end of the day, the, the actual mainstream, the mainstream media, the you know mainstream news organizations were the ones that unraveled this, right? I mean, you look at you know a face in the crowd, uh, a movie that is a Hollywood movie that is an attack on McCarthyism. Um, that is also true. I mean, Manchurian Candidate, things like that. And it's and, and it's Edward R. Murrow who comes out and you know famously does that television broadcast. And we have other you know people saying, "Have you no sense of decency, sir?" There was a huge pushback. And McCarthy, you know, died an ignominious death as an alcoholic and people were like, he's a punchline. His name is a byword in America for being essentially evil, right? That's not going to happen in this case. It's going to be the fact that people are sometimes slowly acknowledging that maybe Jay Bhattacharya, an epidemiologist at Stanford, no slouch people, had said, I just think that this is real and this is an issue, but people need to be you know, we need to focus on the old and blah, 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 blah. Everyone knows his argument. But the idea that that was so dangerous to America, much like, you know, McCarthy said, these people are such a danger to the internal security of America, mm -hmm. that we're not going to arrest them as such. But you, by the way, the people get arrested or arrested for contempt of court, uh, contempt of Congress. That's what you go to jail for or perjury, things like that. That's what Alger Hiss went to jail for perjury, not for spying. And you can essentially destroy people's lives that way. And that the point is their beliefs should take on this toxic quality that they're run out of, of public life. And you see that when Jay Bhattacharya says, you know, he's a complete, I mean, the guy is like the least polemical person you've ever seen. He's this very quiet, sort of nice, nerdy guy and talks about the reaction to him and guys like John Ioannidis at Stanford and to their ideas on this. It was, it was tremendously isolating and deliberately so mm -hmm. and in there is the analog there is mccarthyism and there's there's something about there's something about having your uh as rand paul had your your youtube account your twitter account shut down because of things that you're saying publicly about some public health matter that government officials are insisting you know you ought to be shut down whether or not people see the messages they're aware of the fact that your account is gone now and the narrative becomes this person was engaging yeah. in disinformation that's Whether right. or not you that's were you were right or wrong, no one can see that. They can only see the sanction, and that yes. sanction has real consequence. Rand Paul is fortunate; yes. he's a senator. <laughs> like, if you happen to mm -hmm. not be that, 
you may not have a lot of avenues for appeal. This, this, it is at a, whatever one's feelings about the pandemic or any other overriding concern at a minimum, like this is a sort of collusion with the state and it demands scrutiny. And it's totally appropriate that Robbie is writing about this in a thoughtful way. I mean, good that reason continues to do so. And I certainly, and it's also Drew presumed that there's a right answer. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely I, it's, right. it's, the, 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 it's, that tweet is saying that, at that point in the pandemic, we knew the correct answer and we were trying to yes. to this bad toxic information. It's not as if, you know, from and Matt, correct me if I'm wrong about this on 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 Robbie's um, reporting on this. It's not as if it's, you know, scam demic or plan dem, whatever those bullshit conspiracy theories are. No, I mean, I mean it's things it's literally and- um, the CDC saying, hey, look, people are calling into question mm-hmm. whether it's a good idea to vaccinate five year olds. You know what? I don't know if it's yeah. a good idea to vaccinate five-year-olds. I, I don't. I honestly I don't. don't. I vaccinated <laughs> just our then six-year-old, and I did it, honestly, um, as much because I didn't want her to be uh, like excluded from activities. And mm. I thought it was a coin toss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so there's, so there's, like, there's pressure all around us in that scenario. It's not good. It's not good. And to have the government sitting there and saying this disputable thing, which people disagree on which whole european countries who we might otherwise uh hold up as a model um are, yeah. are saying like don't vaccinate kids under 12 um we get if we say that in america the cdc is going to pressure facebook and twitter to uh throttle our engagements or maybe even block us that's a problem you have to recognize that as a problem Th- that's the tone which i object to you know and again i mean this is nothing specific about drew carry i mean i have a lot of respect for him but it's the tone of that which I object to because it makes it sound as if this, you know, toxic information that's getting people killed is being, being, you know, stricken from the record. And that's such a good thing. Whereas if you reframed it to him and said, would you be upset in any way? You know, not a rights issue, not a rights issue. I sound like Trump, but not a rights <laughs> issue, um, not a rights issue, but just generally the dissemination of differing points of view, et cetera. Would you be okay with meta? colluding with the U.S. government to prevent the Swedish government from putting any of their research and any of their recommendations on mm. uh, Facebook. Mm. That's a, mm. I would love to hear the answer. I mean, maybe, maybe so, actually. Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. Maybe, you're right. Maybe so. A uh, couple other things percolating, which maybe we talk about, maybe we don't. Um, this week, there was an interesting scene. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah, the president's press yeah. secretary comes down for the gaggle. The press is, is arrayed in front of her. And they were grilling her a bit this week because the Biden administration has totally clammed up about this weird document drama that is unfolding with the, the classified documents. They will not talk about this publicly. And in the same press conference, you had reporters from NBC, from CBS, from Fox, who were all so you're not going to talk about this. We just want to be very clear that you are no longer going to be making public statements about this. Like we've reached out to the Justice Department. Wait, is this the, the they haven't wait? So this is the Kareem John Pierre. Yeah, this is two Kareem. Oh, the briefing. Yeah, in the, in briefing the briefing. Room. Yeah, yeah. You're you're okay. no longer going to issue any kind of statements about these documents. Yeah. Um, we've reached out to the Justice Department. They haven't given us any indication that you're not allowed to talk about this, but you're not going to answer any more questions about this. And they've just decided that they're not going to talk about this anymore. Mm-hmm. Which I suspect, given that we were Trump can't talk of, about his taxes, he's audited. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Um, <laughs> but I presume that we might be hearing a little bit more about this. But today we also have the debt limit drama that is playing out. And mm-hmm. now the, the, the narrative shifted a little bit. Um, the debt limit has something to do with the country's ability to service its various debts. There is a statutory mm-hmm. limitation on the amount of money that can be paid out given the, the budget deficits that we have. And the Congress is obliged to approve an increase in the debt limit. This is how this thing works. Um, but we've run up against the deadline. So today, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, sent a letter to Congress saying, hey, we are taking, quote, extraordinary measures in order to buy you a little bit more time. So rather than today being the day that the government is no longer able to, say, pay people who are holding government treasuries. The date has been kicked out to June or July, something like that. So they've got a couple more months now because there's going to be some crazy. It's always accounting. muddy, yeah. Um, but in either case, um, there is a, a pretty substantial beef that is beginning to brew between congressional Republicans and congressional Democrats, but also with the the White House as well. So McCarthy and Biden are apparently having conversations. But the White House is also saying pretty explicitly that Biden is always open to discussions about things, but that he is not going to debate the debt limit with Republicans. This is not the first time that well, things have been cast in sense. this particular way. Um, but He's not going to have to. But they're being so told that, that I, I get it. There will be no negotiations with respect to the debt ceiling being lit, raised, which, I mean, it seems to me that that negotiating over whether and how the debt limit ought to be raised is precisely the reason why Congress has the authority to explicitly raise the debt limit. That's how the whole Mm. thing works. Some sort of bartering and conversation about this seems to be kind of expected, anticipated, as opposed to a rubber stamp increase of the debt limit. Is is it unfair for someone to be trying to turn the screws to extricate some kind of deal, especially in service of, say, spending less money um, over the long run? In the, is it spending in the, less money, though? That's a, well, Right I, now, what's on the table I don't on see anyone, anyone actually making a good deal, but I'm just saying that they're probably Kevin McCarthy, some like the, the, the side of the people who want to make a deal about this now, even though they haven't wanted to make a deal about this, in the previous eight years, mm-hmm. which is Republicans, they haven't wanted to make a deal this since November 5th, 2014. It's the first time it's come up since then. Um, and what has changed in that period of time? Well, Trump was president for most of that time and it was a hassle. So they just sort of waved it away because uh, they didn't want a hassle. Um, so it kind of uh, it, it takes a little bit of the steam out of the theoretical argument or the principled argument of it. Um but uh, what's happened um, right now is that Republicans have saying, here's what we want to do. We want to um, cut spending. Just we're not going to touch health uh, care spending and defense spending. But uh, yeah, we're, we're not going to touch entitlements. So but we're going to cut spending. There's no motherfucking spending left after that. Go read uh, Veronique DeRuji uh, today again. In reason, um, like health and defense in terms of discretionary spending is what? Two thirds of it? And discretionary spending in terms of the overall spending picture is at this point one third, a quarter, Mm. right? So the stuff that is driving debt is the stuff that has already been taken off limits for negotiations by anybody. And also there's been no politics made out of it. And if anything, the politics, especially by Republicans, especially by the people who have won with the presidency, for example, by J.D. Vance, 
um, who was the only kind of Trumpist to win anywhere, um, has been to protect, to extend those very entitlement programs that are doing it. So I understand why Biden is saying I'm not going to negotiate because he's looking on the other side of someone who's got a five seat majority, who the ground is shaking underneath his feet, who is fucking dumb uh, in Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> um, and there is no like, I mean, Mick Mulvaney um, came out and he was a guy who said he went in a period of I don't know, like 18 months between writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying Republicans are going to squander everything that we have done. He wrote this in 2015. If we mm -hmm. raise um, defense spending because we have like held the line on sequestration cuts back in 2013 and such. If we do this, um, it's going to blow our whole uh, uh, cover. And, and when we go back later to try to uh, impose limits on the, on the debt ceiling, people are going to laugh at us. He wrote that in 2015. And by 2017, when he was a senior guy in the uh, Trump administration, dude was literally saying, we need new deficits. Um, as soon as Republicans hold power, that's what they say. Mm -hmm. And because they haven't made politics about this and they haven't done anything about it, there's going to be such limited appetite in the world. And this is, includes a world where I want to support people using the debt ceiling to cut spending because i think we spend too much and we need to do something about it and those people who are opportunistically on my side are going to lose and uh and they're going to deserve to lose because they've acted like assholes up to this point um it's a it's a shame um and i root for them and i don't root for joe biden but i totally get why he's saying he's not going to negotiate negotiate because i don't think he's going to need to i don't think there's going to be enough of a public groundswell. Republicans have done nothing to prepare that. Zero to prepare, to prepare that up until now. It's going to be hysterically unpopular um, and they have a five-seat majority. So but, I don't see it happening. No, I but mean, is, is the is man no to negotiate it. wrong here? Is it is it reckless, which is what's being suggested, that it is reckless to have any sort of conversation and negotiation around the debt limit being raised? It's not no. reckless, but hypocritical, I think. is what Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I would say this, is that, is that this is one of those moments where you're finally seeing the negative aspects of two parties converging on economic issues over so many years. And there's so many years of the Trump years, right? I mean, Mick Mulvaney, I was, I was with somebody who was on the phone with Mick Mulvaney prior to Trump getting the nomination, and he put him on speakerphone, and Mick Mulvaney was talking, and I'm going to reveal this, and Mick Mulvaney said to him, he's like, you better not fucking leave the party over this asshole mm. about Trump. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm not going to leave the party. You better not leave the fucking party and blah, blah, blah. And not only did he not leave the party, I mean, because he was he was on the record um, being I mean, this is like going from being a member of the White Rose to be a, a member of the SS in a matter of like for three weeks. Um, and he turned considerably all these people. And I've mentioned a million times of Larry Kudlow and Stephen Moore and these guys who decided, um, you know, Art Laffer. I mean, the guy that created a Laffer curve is all of a sudden on the other side of this saying, telling me and I talked to him about this at the time when he was like. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, look, China's kind of, I'm like, you don't believe this, do you? And it's kind of an acknowledgement that they don't believe it. But we're at this point now that when you say this about J.D. Vance and these people that come into Congress, that come into to, um, Washington, and I mean this people in Congress and the Senate, I mean, people are just, you know, all over the place coming in on these kind of Trump tickets. And what do you have? You have people who will not cut spending traditionally even before the Trump um, silliness, uh, f from defense, right? It's not going to happen. This has obviously been the, the, the weak point 
in quote unquote limited government uh, Republicans. So they're not limited government at all because it comes to things like defense. They're going to spend like crazy. But now you have a Democratic Party that is perfectly happy to spend through the roof because the Ukraine stuff isn't unpopular for them. It's it's this is a thing where they think Joe Biden is is doing a good job and they're perfectly happy to, you know, ramp up that spending. We've seen it, the billions and billions of dollars, and that's defense spending. Because we're putting all that money back into Raytheon and all these kind of, you know, to replenish our own stocks and to to put stuff overseas. So there you have the convergence of the two parties there. And then on the other end of that, as you mentioned, the JD Vance's of the world, I mean, cutting entitlements is old Republican stuff. You know, this is what they learned during the Tea Party is that, you know, the joke was, but it turned out to be real in a few cases, the people holding the signs that said, government hands off my Medicare. And that was not even apocryphal, actually. I think that was actually a sign that somebody could have been a plant or anything, but it's not too far from the truth. And you have these people that just were not interested in free market dogma or Friedmanites, you know, University of Chicago, Austrian school dogma, because they didn't understand it and didn't care much about it. But we're going to shrink the size of the things that you get is not a message that anyone wants to hear. And Republicans understand this. So what do they cut? It used to be they go after PBS, point zero 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 one percent of the budget. They used to say that they would say that they would go after PBS, and then they never did. And yes, then when yeah. they were in power, yeah. they would just appoint their cronies to be the head of PBS, to be the head of the Corporation for Public Broad- yes. Broadcasting, right? Yeah. Um, but you know that's the thing is that I mean, right? We are so fucked, so royally, unbelievably, indescribably fucked. If after an inflationary period like we've just had, Mm. you can get neither party to say we should spend less, just raise this motherfucking roof, raise that debt roof, man, because that's what we've been doing. And that's always been the conversation. And no one has ever, you know, in, in recent times said no, because you know what happens? People understand this. So there's kind of two thoughts here, I think, for for the average person who's actually paying attention to this, is that if I don't pay the IRS man, they come after me. They will really come after me. But the United States government doesn't think it has to pay its bills. It doesn't care. We'll just keep printing money. We'll run up debt and to a point where the zeros will make you dizzy. But, but if I tried something like that, if your, your kid who had a credit card tried something like that and said they're not going to pay it, good Lord, you'd be in trouble. There's something sickening to a lot of people that the government can just raise the spending limits because well, why not? We just have to keep going. This is the way of doing it. This is the modern monetary theory of the world. No, it failed. It's shown that it failed recently. We know that this is a total failure. And to keep on doing this for cynical political reasons is why everybody hates this fucking process. And every one of these fucking scumbags in D.C., whether they have an R or a D next to their name, are just trying to survive. the incentive structure for, for people in government in this country is totally wrong. And this, I don't see a way around it, but the incentive is like, I need more. I mean, what happened? We talked to, to Justin Amash. What do you say about half these guys? They want power. Mm-hmm. They're desperate to hang on to power. That's all they care about. And this is from somebody from the inside who left the party after being disgusted by it because there's a few principled people that go to DC. Um, and one of them was Justin. It doesn't make a difference if you agree with him or disagree with him, but he's somebody who's deeply principled on these issues. And if you ask somebody who's deeply principled, these, these people don't believe in anything. It's, it's it, it, you know, it's like the big Lebowski. They're nihilist, man. They don't believe in anything. That's <laughs> fucking what DC is. 
Are you saying it's not, at least it's not an ethos or something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flea running into your bath. So anyway, that's debt. Yeah, <laughs> that's really I, it, that's boring, but whatever. It'd be it's great. Annoying. It'd be great if they did something uh, real. Uh, it's just that they've built zero political capital towards it. Back sure. in 2010, 11, 12, and 13, when this was dominated political discourse and politics in Washington, um, there was actually popularity behind the notion of using the debt ceiling as a, as a way to tackle spending and even to tackle entitlements to some degree back then. And that was on the table and people talked about it. If you don't do anything politically on an issue for eight years and then you suddenly bring it up when you've been governing in the opposite direction, when you've been politicking in the opposite opposite direction, those poll numbers are going to look so much worse in 2023 than they did in 2013. It's not even going to be funny. And Americans hate government shutdowns and they always have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they blame Republicans for them. And they always. And so like this is the only they're not going to be a government shutdown because government is funded through December. That is happening. Um, the debt can be paid off by using smoke and mirrors until June or Tricks, July. Yeah. Um, and no one's, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be a big deal. So I I don't have any confidence that they're going to go any, anywhere with this because they just haven't laid g- groundwork. Similar. Do, do, you, go yeah, ahead, go do ahead. you know one of the interesting things? I've been uh, doing this deep dive and I've, got, I've gotten, you know, a lot of deep dive by all these. No, it's, I've been waylaid by all these things. It's kind of turned into a book probably. But this really interesting thing about about conservatism in the 1950s in America, and I keep coming across this. This is actually not the subject. It's the opposite, actually. I'm, I'm looking at the Democratic Party and, and people. But you come across these conservative, you know, magazines that are mainstream, like Reader's Digest and stuff. And there's constantly these columns in it about free enterprise. Yeah. It's like constant. Mm. It's amazing. It's like they have like literally things about the great free enterprise system and people making this case constantly for us. Never, you know... I'm a conservative. They're just like, you know, this is the greatest thing about free enterprise that the Russians don't have, this sort of thing. And I've said it before, and I, and I, and you know, it, it might be boring at this point, but it is the thing that always mystified me as a young person. It didn't really mystify me. It actually made sense pretty quickly, but bothered me is probably the better way of putting it. It was why in college, all of these very, very stupid people, very, like intensely stupid people who knew nothing were, you know, out there you know, with a hat with fucking Zerzhinsky on it or like a Lenin t-shirt because these things are very, very easy to digest. They're very easy arguments to make, right? The, you know, why is it that the guy who is the CEO of X Corporation makes, you know, $80 million? Why doesn't he just give that money to employees and everybody's happy and it makes everybody... To, to, to tell people why that can't be or why it's not smart to, to do that um, is a real task, right? It is a task to explain to people why. So I remember um, a guy from the New York Times, uh, Nick Kristoff, wrote a piece a long time ago, and I, I really respected him for this. It was a, it was it was an in defense of sweatshops. Who wants to fucking take that position? He's absolutely right. Everything that he said was absolutely right. And if you don't know the argument, in one sentence it is: these people get paid more than anyone else in their country. And those jobs in those countries are often government jobs that suck. Mm. And so like Nike, people line up for it. And then we call them sweatshops because we're like, they get paid a dollar a day. It's like, yeah, they don't live in Manhattan. It's not the same thing as being in Manhattan. But I don't envy people like that who have to go and make that argument. Sweatshop, everybody's like, yeah, those are bad. Within a second, within one second, you have everyone on your side trying to make the economic argument that this actually isn't as bad as you think it is. Catherine Manga Ward is a good example of this. 
when she wrote something really smart um, a long time ago, check caching places. Man, you really got to take the fucking bad end of this one, don't you? <laughs> she made a brilliant argument. I think, I mean, she's an incredibly brilliant person. And it's like, yeah, someone has to kind of make this argument about bank, banking in poor neighborhoods, et cetera. And the reason I bring this up is that because it is really hard for these people, they don't want to do it. Like, who's going to be the politician who's going to barnstorm across America saying this free enterprise that we had, which people did in the 50s? No one wants to do that because it's hard. Justin Amash would have literally town halls where people mow mowed him and shouted at him and spit at him and spat at him. Is it spit or spat? Spat. It's spat. Um, have a spat. Um, both. I mean, spit it sounds nice. Sure. Yeah, he did that because he, because, you know, this is a man who's so imbued with principle and ideas that he very stupidly thought that this would be a good fit for Washington. <laughs> Sorry, Justin. <laughs> Big mistake. He's um, actually pretty good, pretty good at town halls, pretty good at explaining no, to I know that, that, hostile well, audiences. No, no, that's what I mean. I mean, you saw this and you wrote a piece about it, man. People should go look that up. And you, you saw it in real time. And yeah. I've seen the, the videos. He's great at. And that's the thing is that there's not a lot of him. Yeah. There's very few of him. And it's much easier to say when somebody raises their hand at a town hall to say, why is my Medicare shrinking? Is it going to shrink? Ma'am, it's not going to shrink. If I have anything to do about it, blah, blah, blah. No one wants to hit some elderly person with the cold, hard economic realities that some of these things will be insolvent pretty soon. You know, There's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough place to be. That, that, uh, thing that you, uh, rightly, uh, describe the sort of Ronald Reagan spending two decades, three decades Time of his choosing. life, just yeah. constantly saying this Milton Friedman in his yeah. own way too. Um, he put out records. There's literally records of Ronald Reagan talking about this during the enterprise period. system. Yeah. He's put on the <laughs> Phil Hartman face and you're ready to go. Exactly. Um, uh, that was, you had the, you had the communist threat, both yes, exactly. the literal like overt hard power of it, but also the soft power of it too. Um, yes. And now it's just different. This is a, a recurring conversation in kind of libertarian circles, including like libertarian funding circles. Like, how do we get back to that giving talks about the free enterprise system? And um, you cannot recreate those sense of threat modules. You know, the uh, Thomas Piketty um, was very influential um, and it was important to counteract his arguments. But is he really a threat? Is he going to like eat away at the universe in some way does there is there an army that's going to enforce pickettyism um if it like uh, sucks up this part of the world it's just different it just is um which is, it is corrosive though i think yeah it's absolutely corrosive and and like it's it there should be some like consciousness about that problem um but it also has to adapt to circumstances and it's a it's a moving target. But the say. problem but the problem yeah. specifically being that they they no longer have the tension that gives them a cause to advocate for free enterprise because they do have a new I don't want to use the phrase boogeyman because that would suggest perhaps that I don't take the communist threat seriously. Um but <laughs> or you don't in, have in to take it seriously in the historic to. context. Yeah. But in a contemporary context, there is something that conservatives are kind of uniformly arrayed against. And that is apart from just Democrats broadly, wokeness and wokeism more broadly. Yeah. It is the culture war you won. that plays you precisely won, that role. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Matt Welch. 
Oh, you were right. Is this was this week uh, that Representative Jim Banks suggested that he was planning to launch an anti woke caucus in Congress. So I suppose the Freedom Caucus was not enough, um, and it is morphed into whatever it is now. Um, but Jim Banks is planning his anti woke caucus. We'll see if anything comes of that. But it's certainly the case that there have been plenty so of Republican races that have been dominated by themes related to critical race theory and, again, the specter of wokeness. And running against wokeness is something that the governor of Florida, who is by some accounts, I think, a favorite, if not the favorite, to secure the Republican nomination that he hasn't even declared he's going after yet for president of the United States, the dominant theme of that administration isn't the profound economic success that they've had. It is stopping wokeness in all its various guises, whether it's at private companies who want to do DEI stuff in K-12 education or at universities, state-sponsored universities, but universities broadly as well. Um, this is a, a, a fundamental focal point for them, and it is something that they can rally against. So they do have a boogeyman. But, they, but they're right in one sense, right? I mean, the reason we're talking about Ron DeSantis now is because of that. We're not bec it's not because he, he reacted brilliantly in response to the hurricane. And, you know, that's why people, I think, voted him in by such a marge, large margin this time, because he did do a good job. I mean, I think that's undeniable. I mean, trust me, if he had done a bad job, you'd be hearing about it, you know, for the rest of your mm -hmm. life, for the rest of his life. He would, would never stop, like, look at how he screwed up. Um, heck of a job, Brownie, didn't happen in this mm -hmm. case. So the national stage, is that's how you get on the national stage. It, it works quite well. Um, you know, I don't, when, when it comes to a national campaign, I don't know if people are as exercised about that, you know, outside of a primary and outside of the media battle. I think that is, a, they're, they're big issues in both of those um, uh, camps. But you have the guys like Banks. I mean, this is like, we're going to create an anti-woke cause. This is all posturing, right? I mean, what... It's amazing to me that these are the same Republicans that are the same party that would warn us that government is not the solution to your problems. It is. It, it, it cannot and will not be the solution to your problems. And I think, again, this is a, the, the Cold War analog is probably pretty good here, too, is that the times when the government intervened in cases like this, when, when, in things that weren't illegal, right? Arresting the Rosenbergs, perfect. That's, you should have done that, right? Uh, arresting Alger Hiss, et cetera, spies and people are working on behalf of the Soviet government. Or but as far as like the kind of influence of it, the, war, the, the times when the government tried to do something about that, it, you know, they're infamous to t till today and they give people on the other side of this issue incredible ammunition to this very day. I mean, HBO is making award-winning films about COINTELPRO. And that's a response to a big cultural problem that people on the right saw at that time. I just don't know if there's anything that can be done in a sense of like defeating woke. Let's, let's take it in a broader sense. Not about, you know, the things that they get very specific about, about schools and stuff. We've talked a lot about that. There's no need to rehash that. You can go back and, you know, find everybody's kind of slightly disparate opinions on that. But just in general corporation is shoving this down my throat good so fucking what what are you going to do about it get up on stage give a barn burner of a, of a speech about it you introduce a bit of legislation i hope you burn in fucking hell because that's not your job 
your job is not to tell Amazon not to, you know, feed me, you know, ads about stupid political causes. I can take my money elsewhere. I don't need a fucking congressman to tell me to do it. And trust me, this does not land well with people. And we're seeing this turn. We're seeing everyone I know acknowledges this. We're seeing it kind of recede a bit. And it's not because of any government power. It's because if you allow these people the microphone, sunlight being the, des- the best d- disinfectant, people realize how insane it is, mm-hmm. right? They try to get clicks by this of saying that exercise is racist, science, scientific American or whatever. But the reason they know this is going to go viral is because it's fucking dumb. <laughs> like, it's not people really, oh my God, what a great point. That's not why it's going viral. It's because it's fucking idiotic. Like, don't, we don't need, I mean, I think the true, I argue this not as somebody who's on any particular side as, you know, not a conservative and it's not a libertarian position or anything, but it's like, I, I, who thinks the intervention of a shithead congressman who's never done anything, and if, if they, I would love to have them on the podcast and see how they respond to these things, it's probably unbelievably dim as most of them are, what do they expect to achieve by this? I think that good sense wins all the time. I don't think that I'm going to be, you know, atrophying on my deathbed and saying, how did we let them win? I don't think that's going to happen. It just can't. The one idea that I uh, saw in Jim Banks' list of particulars about what the House woke caucus, anti-woke caucus is going to do. um, In fairness, I didn't read these, so (laughs) I should should acknowledge It's fine. (laughs) That's an instinct. Um, Is... uh, or at least a position that I agree with is that he thinks it's a bad thing that in Joe Biden's first week of his presidency, mm-hmm. he is, he issued a 100%. whole of government, um, yes. basically an auditing of, of checking out, see what every thing has done in terms of equity. Um, and it's like win and repeal it, win, win That's and repeal it. The thing is, yes. um, so you have a committee an ad hoc political committee in the House of Representatives while the president is a Democrat. So it's an aspiration and it's a good one and highlight sure. it and talk about the abuses. That's what I actually want to hear because I I know a couple of people in government whose workload has changed precisely because of this executive order yeah. that Biden mm-hmm, signed. Mm-hmm. And it's bad um, and stupid and pointless. And it, it doesn't even go to what you would hope it would go to, because if we're really going to be measure um, disparate impacts of government policies and and come to some conclusions about that, that could be a more interesting exercise than they thought going in, because people selectively interpret those data over time. They do not um, look at it in terms of like, oh, were our COVID school policies? Was there any dis- disparate impact on those having to do with minority communities? Yes, there fucking was. And if we're going by your rules, you are the biggest fucking racist I've ever seen. I'm not going to go by your rules, but that's an interesting way of, of looking at it. But still, it's a bad idea. Uh, so I'd like to see that. However, the House of Representatives is not the place to change that. Winning the presidency with someone who isn't insane exactly. Um, exactly. Is, is the way that's to do it. that. And, that's it. And I'm, I'm just, this is the main point. It's the causal relationship here. You motherfuckers supported the shittiest candidate you could possibly find a train wreck of a candidate and you got what you like, what anybody could have shown was this, this is going to happen, right? Inevitably, this is going to happen. A man who was not popular and whose popularity was cratering and who was just in slightly unhinged sociopath 
who never should have been anywhere close to the presidency. And, and you know what? We've talked a lot about this in the show that, you know, the guy's treated unfairly in certain areas. Doesn't mean he should have been president. Doesn't mean he's a smart guy. Doesn't mean he's a sensible guy. Doesn't mean he has any fucking ideology to speak of beyond, you know, narcissism. If you, you back that horse, the one that's hobbling and, you know, just been pumped full of drugs to stay alive and it careens off the track into the stands and dies. And you're like, wait, what the fuck happened? It's like, you just, did you see that guy? Did you see what you fucking backed? The horse that was shaking and twitching and saying, all mumbling and saying all this crazy shit. That's why this shit happened because they're like, we won. That's what happens. Pretty simple. Stop running people like this. And if the midterms didn't show, like, I mean, literally, in the moment we're talking about, we, we're the very, we're very close up view of this. But when we back that camera out a year from now and we talk about two years from now, five years from now, we talk about Herschel Walker, <laughs> fucking Dr. Oz, like what country, like, are you fucking kidding me? You guys deserve to be in the minority for nine generations for that yeah. shit. So unbelievable. But beyond, but beyond the winning of races, there's a general question about the philosophy of the approach. And we do remember that Donald Trump kind of presaged the Biden administration's whole of government mandate to do DEI stuff because he prohibited the federal government from engaging in the DEI stuff, which mm-hmm. even at the time, I mean, for me, look, it's the federal government. It's just, they're spending money and he's saying, don't spend it on that. Okay, you're within your rights. But there is something to be said for reacting in a particular way against a, a distinct politically disfavorable, at least among your constituency, ideology, even if it's for the right reasons. And when you look at like in Florida, for example, Florida Department of Education, there's a a presser that they released this week. Um, Florida college system president rejects, quote, woke, unquote, diversity, equity and inclusion, critical race theory ideologies and embraces academic freedom. And there should be a lot of things I can like about something like this. But when I read through the press release, even the language that seems like it's favorable to someone like me, who is generally skeptical of a lot of the social justice excesses, in fact, all of it, um, the, the, way in which, the way in which it's represented in these documents doesn't make it clear to me exactly what they're in favor of and makes it very clear that they're actually acting not so much in service of broader values that I have, but against a particular set of values that they hate. When the description of what they're doing is that they want to focus on the development of knowledge and research endeavors and creative activities, a college faculty and student body must be free to cultivate a spirit of inquiry and scholarly criticism and to examine ideas in an atmosphere of freedom and confidence, free from shielding and in a non-discriminatory manner. All of that sounds fine. Um, the FCS president remains committed to developing campus environments that uphold objectivity in teaching and learning and in professional development, and that welcomes all voices. The thing that actually set me off when I read that is this notion of objectivity being the standard for ed- educators. I don't even know what the fuck that means. Mm. If what you're looking for is an environment where people can think freely and debate ideas openly, that isn't about objectivity. You want critical thinking to be cultivated. That's the value. In which case, trying to make objectivity, this this nonsense idea, 
fundamental goal of your educational system is is just a problem. And I think that's especially true when you're talking about higher education. Plenty of my university professors, in fact, the best ones were anything but objective. They had dogs in the fight. They had particular points of view. They were willing to allow us to to have debates and arguments with them about a range of topics, including a lot of the race stuff that is particularly hot now. Um, and granted, I have my melanin force field, so I never had to worry that I was articulating a view that was going to get me into trouble. Um, but at the time, I didn't get the sense that there wasn't an ability to have constructive conversations on campus. So to the extent that isn't something that can happen on campus, there is a cultural norm that needs to be reestablished on college campuses. But you can't get there by politicizing all of these fights in the opposite direction and trying to expunge people from the system who have particular kinds of bad ideas. So I, I do think that for all the reasons you mentioned, Moynihan, there does seem to be a less reason to be afraid that you will have your life utterly destroyed for speaking out against certain kinds of cultural craziness. But at the same time, if people have no idea how to articulate some affirmative vision of what they're going after and instead are doubling down on heaping vitriol on the people that they have contempt for, I fear for the future. I don't have any reason to believe that we'll actually just magically end up at the right place here. We know some people in the governor's universe. And what I would ask of them are a few things. Um, and like you, I mean, I, I have no tolerance for, for a lot of this bullshit and a lot of this nonsense. And I can be more specific about what that is. But um, the one thing I would say is it's a private university and there's been some blurring of whether it's public or private that they're concerned about. If it's objectivity that you're after, do you want to shut down Hillsdale College? Hmm. Do you want to shut down Liberty University? These are not objective places. Uh, Hillsdale's, uh, you know, notably a conservative place and has some really interesting scholars there and produces some really smart, interesting people that I've met. And, um, you know, they're probably, these are people that go to university probably because their parents are conservative or they're young kind of conservatives already at mm -hmm. 17 years old. Sure. Whereas the issue, you know, you go to a state college and you come in without politics and you leave with a bunch of radical politics. But the question, if you, if objectivity is what you're after, you're going to have to shut down those people too. Mm -hmm. If Paul Johnson, historian who just died, you know, last week, week and a half, two weeks ago, would you hire him as a historian? Notably a conservative historian. Some, you know, he is a conservative and he, he writes history from a conservative perspective, which I find um, useful and interesting. And some of the stuff I find not very useful, but I try to read all of it, right? The objective standard is not, I think, what we should be after because that's, you know, this amorphous kind of thing. It's very hard to define. If you define it, you're going to get into even more trouble. The thing that I would say that one would want to do at public universities is be very vigorous about this and to make sure that there's no discrimination in hiring. Yeah. And the discrimination in hiring yeah. is political. And that is true. Mm -hmm. And we know this. And I've talked to a lot of people. Doubt, yeah. And how many people you know that write to this podcast and say, I can't say anything until yep. I get tenure. Yeah. Then I'll talk to you. That is a problem. It's not about whether people like, so when you say object, this material is not objective. It's like, and again, we're talking about higher education. Here. We're not talking about high school. But higher education here, Ibram X. Kendi is a featherweight. He is embarrassing to listen yeah. to. His books are embarrassing as scholarship. 
they're weak and flimsy. No, plenty of academics. But they're influential. Plenty, plenty of academics, many of whom are aggressively left of center. I know no one who has any respect for the guy professionally. Yes. But he has a center at BU yeah. that's, you know, just where he gets paid for God knows what. But the, should we, because it is a flimsy work of scholarship, well, that informs a lot of people in mainstream media outlets. They talk about him pretty frequently. He's going to get all sorts of, you know, garlanded with all sorts of prizes and awards and, you know, put the sash on him, the, the, the smartest man on earth, the McCarthy <laughs> Award, uh, 1619 Project, uh, all that stuff. I don't want to not teach that. It exists. Yeah. It sells millions of copies. But I do want people who are professors, and this is the point, and by the way, you fire people as professors, but especially in this day and age where people record everything and you can, you know, have evidence of this stuff if you need it. If professors are punishing people in offering one vision, that's bad scholarship, right? It's Lysenkoism. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is Soviet science, right? We don't want the other side. This is Lysenko is Stalin scientist and the other ones are going to be persecuted and probably shot that's what we have to be concerned about. Do those people exist? Yes, I, I, I had them as professors. If there was a, a way at the University of Massachusetts, which was where I went to school, which was a state school, some grievance process to say, hey, I'm paying good money to go here, and any time I open my mouth, mm -hmm. it's get the fuck out of here. We're shutting you down. We're not going to read that stuff. We're not going to talk about that stuff. If I was opening my mouth and being shut down, because of my race, because of my sexuality, because of my gender identification, any of these things, there'd be a very, very quick process and they'd probably fire 70 people the next day. But what about the process for people who just say, I, in this learning environment, I want a broader scope of these things. Um, so I don't think that that's bad. I don't think that's wrong. Yeah. But when, and I think Camille, you're right, and that's the word to hone in on and saying like, the teacher needs to be objective well, motherfucker, define it for me, and then we'll get to a very sticky place. Because, uh, and as you pointed out, I never had professors that were objective. And you took professors for that reason. Sure. You knew they're, they're in, like, this is a guy who worked in the Obama administration. You know, go take his class because you'll probably get yeah, a pretty yeah. interesting perspective. Yeah, I don't want that person to be objective and say, well, I don't really have an opinion. No, have an opinion. I just want to be able to fight back again. It's it's odd to, to think that, that anyone isn't in a situation. And I, again, I, I'm a board member at FIRE. I know that there are situations like this, but that you're in a classroom where you don't look forward to the opportunity to have it out with your professor or some other members oh, of your it. class. Um, I, I suppose we should mention um, as well, though, that this week also in Florida, but in the K through 12 realm, the college board had submitted a curriculum for its AP African-American studies course so that kids who were taking it in high school could get college credit. And the state of Florida sent them a letter telling them that the course was in violation of the Stop Woke Act, which is a piece of legislation that permits the state to review curriculum and um, on a statewide basis, let various publishers of textbooks or curriculums know that they were in some way, shape, or form promoting critical race theory adjacent ideologies and therefore the couldn't be they... included. Now, as I haven't seen the letter and I looked for it, but I do have okay. some experience with this having spoken to publishers 
of other educational materials uh, who have fielded a number of these letters from Florida. And based on a kind of cursory review of the kind of stuff they were getting flagged for, I can say that some of it, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, that's actually weird. It is strange for this particular Mm -hmm. math problem to be concerned with affirmative action in ninth grade algebra or whatever. That's weird. (laughs) Like, stop that. But at the same time, there were other things that were more amorphous. But in general, the letters were not specific. They didn't tell you exactly how you were running afoul of things. In this particular case, the college board was unwilling to publicly release the materials for the course. So no one else had an opportunity to evaluate this and say, well, this is what's wrong. It did eventually leak. And I believe yesterday, or maybe it was today, because this the letter was sent a little earlier, and then there was some news yesterday and today. But as of right now, it has been published. And there do appear to be some weird, specifically language around colorblindness and the specific assertion in the AP coursework is... Not so much that colorblindness is wrong, but it does cite an academic who is a critical race theorist who has written extensively about how colorblindness is wrong. And it makes reference to him in that vein. And that appears to be one of the specific ways that they're running afoul of the Stop Woke Act. Is there a counter voice there? Is it just that? It's it's just that. And it does appear that that the curriculum pretty much excludes any kind of classical liberal thinkers so that's an issue. But for me personally, as, as I think, Matt, you mentioned a moment ago, if you're taking a college civics or a high school civics class today and you're never exposed to Nicole Hannah-Jones' work, that is an abomination. This is not an education. But if you're like only you, exposed if you're to only exposed to it, that is similarly an abomination. This is, this is a disservice to the students who yeah. are under, under your tutelage that shouldn't happen. Like This is a part of the discourse. There is a vibrant and active argument in our country today about where our values are and what they ought to be. And I don't think it is appropriate for the state to be prescribing what those values are and then using the schools in order to push a particular political agenda. I feel the same way about Donald Trump pushing some sort of patriotic political curriculum. And that's not to say that there won't be any values in schools whatsoever, but I do think it's very different when there is this very hot culture war over a particular set of ideological values and people who are saying either, and this is what we were getting essentially, either it must be the only thing taught or it can't be taught at all. Because these things tend to go in one direction, right? I mean, this is the case when you talk about media bias, for instance. It's going to be one group of people that are talking about this more than another, and that just sort of because this is unidirectional, right? And because the people who write textbooks tend (laughs) to be in one place and tend to have, you know, kind of a more uniform opinion, I wouldn't be surprised if at these textbook publishers, you're getting about 85 to 90% of people that probably vote for Democrats. I'm just guessing, but that's, that's not a fact. It's just a guess. I know for a fact, as everyone, you know, you know, rains thunder down on, on Ron DeSantis and, and um, as we've pointed out right now, I mean, there's plenty of things to disagree with. But what do you think would happen if in Massachusetts it was brought to the attention of the government, the state of Massachusetts, or a school board in a wealthy town in, in 
uh, outside of Boston, that this, the book that they're getting has a whole section on race. And this one section is, it's just Thomas Sowell. Uh, the next one is Walter Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next bit after that is Shelby Steele. And, uh, and for a little good measure, there's a little sidebar by Camille Foster. <laughs> and that's it. How do you think the reaction would be? I mean, I mean do, do you plenty think of diversity of perspective people say, there. I think it's fine. Uh, yeah, they're actually, they're actually <laughs> funny, funny enough, they're actually really is. That's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. But the funny thing about this is, is that we don't have to have those conversations. Yeah. But do you think we'd have a conversation about the censoriousness of the people on... Uh, no, I'd be on their side. Mm-hmm. I'd say that this is, you know, this is coming from one perspective. Yeah. And I don't think this is good for kids. I, I, they need to get, you need to have, you know, it was great back in the old, like, intellectual magazine days where there'd be, you know, every issue you got a magazine, there'd be another, you know, shot across the bow of the person that was attacked responding to the writer responding. It's like commentary and dissent and all this stuff. New York Review Constant, of Books, Nation. New York Review of Books. Yeah. Oh, my God, it went for ages, you know. Um, I was just reading a few of them uh, recently before I did this fire podcast um, about that ha- uh, Hamlin University thing. And that was the Salman Rushdie thing and John Lacari It goes for 10 issues in a row going back and forth. That's the kind of debate that, that always fired me. And I really enjoyed it. It really just motivated me in so many ways. And it's just like, it doesn't matter if it was happening in Massachusetts out of the same, same thing. But if that is actually the case, that you're getting that in Florida and it's like, you know, one person saying, by the way, there's a received truth now in our post-George Floyd world that, that you know, structural racism is just a fact of life mm-hmm. and, you know, white supremacy is everywhere. And these people are fanatics. I mean, they truly are fanatics. And they do believe that to have a different opinion on this is eye-popping to them. How could you possibly not believe this? This is obvious around us. Look at the disparities. And of course, disparities mean discrimination to them. So this is, this is just the way it is. I mean, they truly believe that they have truth on their side. If you have, I don't think you're going to get that. Um, religious people, evangelical people, whoever, they might have more of a received truth kind of idea. But I don't think that there's going to be people trying to shove a, a, a curriculum through that is just, you know, uh, Paul Johnson books and, uh, and uh, conservative historians. There was a, uh, uh, a bill, I think, that's up for discussion in Mississippi this week, where in the name of uh, we need transparency in our public schools, um, they decided that what we're going to have now is just cameras in every classroom. If we man- oh, yeah. if we <laughs> mandate cameras in every classroom, we can make sure that they're not teaching the, the nefarious stuff. And it's like people, we need to we need to think this through a little bit. Um, we need to teach about communism in the Soviet Union, and we're going to put cameras in every room. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> What are you doing? I was uh, uh, today. I uh, went to my uh, youngest daughter's school to give a. They're they're putting together a newspaper, and they heard that I'd worked in journalism and, and at newspapers, these old timey things. And uh, so I went and talked to them for about thirty minutes, and I could just imagine some of the conversation, which is hilarious, as you can imagine, because they're seven year olds. Um, uh, what would it be like in a in a heightened atmosphere? of nitpicking with my Mississippi camera over one shoulder and oh, like yeah. the anti-woke act over here and maybe the reverse image of whatever that might be in, in New York or anywhere else. Um, because the kids um, I brought in, uh, went around the neighborhood and uh, just started buying every newspaper I could see, including papers I'd never heard of. I think one's called like the shield 
which is a cop newspaper that's been out since 1897. <laughs> um, and like, it's awesome. It's like New York, man. Yeah, it's like, yeah, racist. A, so there's, <laughs> there was a Caribbean, uh, like diaspora weekly at the local, uh, grocery store. And there was a, a Cobble Hill, uh, Brooklyn Heights because they, they're, uh, schools of Brooklyn Heights, um, a newspaper. And someone blurted out, like, oh, I see Cabin Plaza on here. We go to Cabin Plaza sometimes. It's really dirty. I'm like, uh-huh. Uh, like we're sort of talking mm-hmm. about it. They're in Brooklyn Heights. And for people who are listening, um, it's Brooklyn Heights is the oldest suburb in Manhattan uh, or like of Manhattan. It's in Brooklyn, but it overlooks um, downtown. Uh, uh, a lot of famous rich people have lived there over the years. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's it's and Tony. There's nothing to do there. there. Um, like the Montague- mentioned, mentioned in Bob Dylan's uh, Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, Montague Street we live sucks. On Montague Street. Uh, it's like, boring. It's boring. It should be much better. I don't know. <laughs> it, there's a whole theory behind that, but uh, actually, uh, our our friend Nancy Rommelman wrote a book called Queens of Montague Street. She grew up down there. But uh, that's this little isolated pocket, and then Cabin Plaza is the Civic Center, which they built in the '60s. And like everything built in the '60s, it really, really sucks. All these brutalist government buildings and the sort of skate rats and homeless people and kind of. Uh, just kind of flotsam and jetsam and then Fulton Street kind of goes beyond and so we were supposed to be talking about newspapers but the kids just started like randomly talking about how they don't like this neighborhood over there <laughs> they like their neighborhood because it's quieter and cleaner and so I was sort of extending the conversation of like yeah you know what we're first of all we live in New York so we're all on top of each other there is no such thing as a quiet place in New York City but also this is reflected in political debates um, especially in Brooklyn Heights, there's a huge debate. Um, uh, I think uh, re- again, reason is- Matt, there's seven. <laughs> no, but like it was in the context of doing newspapers and like that these things produce conflicts that adults talk about, like like who gets to go to what school in this neighborhood compared to that neighborhood. Right there is a gigantic fucking issue, and that like being media literate and aware of all these things around you. And I was of course very careful, as you can imagine. As I in these things and like if there was a nanny sitting over my shoulder with a camera making policing my language in that I I'm sure even in my careful state I would have run afoul that even while I was trying they would have said there's there's seven men you're like the divide here is like I need to go pee pee can I go (laughs) can I go pee pee no it's like but look, what Robert Moses did, hold, just hold on, I just relax. relax I did bring relax. a Beminem domain. I did. I Look, look yeah, there's seven. Yeah. They need to know. They yeah, need yeah. to know. It's yeah. You're the one. I need the Stop Matt Act to prevent you from <laughs> proselytizing to kids. You're not wrong. Oh, by the way, speaking of, uh, of uh, you're talking about homeless and, and um, shittiness, I do want to point out that the guy who was uh, spraying the homeless person in San Francisco with the hose, yes. oh, right. uh, was arrested. Yes. So we now have figured out what gets you arrested in San Francisco. <laughs> so I just wanted to, you know, free that guy. I, I sent you that text. You shouldn't, you shouldn't you spray homeless I, people with hose. Just in general. They're just sitting there. It depends the on the temperature. You don't spray them with hose. Yeah, if it's in like Palm Springs. If they, if they don't want it. it not, the stream wasn't really that strong, Matt. No, I mean it's not Bull Connor. Oh I mean, my this is god, just a little bit of a, it's a bit of a trick. This is wrong. 
It is wrong to spray the homeless lady with the hose. You know, it's also wrong to piss and shit in front of that guy's store. Is that what was happening? <laughs> I don't think that's what Probably. was happening. She was just sitting there and he was spraying her and insisting that she needed to you, go down. What, the you, block. what did you think? She went to her house to go to the bathroom? She probably went. She probably she went? went right around the corner or at least a couple houses yeah. down in front of somebody else's <laughs> store with somebody who didn't have a hose. Or maybe she was always exactly. doing it indoors someplace. Yeah. But him yeah, spraying her with the hose. hose. I mean, come on. Come on, arm arm everybody in San Francisco. Do do what I do what I had to do. There was some kid. There was some kid doing like street drumming outside of the uh, apartment where we were staying in Chicago at like ten o'clock at night. I was like, "Look, dude, here's twenty dollars. Go somewhere else." And he did (laughs) twenty bucks. Because he twenty bucks. I'm generous. It's funny. Twenty dollars reminds me of of uh, you could buy a whole carton of eggs. our friend in San Francisco, Camille, who texted after that video, texted in our channel yeah. a little bit, and he he popped up <laughs> and said, "Who would have thought that we could solve the homeless uh, crisis in San Francisco with a twenty dollars garden hose?" <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's a joke. People. Yeah, it's a joke. Yeah. it was purely bait for Moynihan it. to to unleash his inner Bernie Getz, which is never far from the. Uh, yeah, I was say Bernie Sanders. <laughs> 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 Oh, uh, look, don't with the hose. What are you doing? Uh, no, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a Bernie Getz fan. Come on. He's a he um, ran for uh, governor of New York or mayor of New York City, I think, on the uh, the vegetarian party ticket. I think it was. I'm serious. <laughs> he had like squirrels in his apartment, like full of squirrels. He's a total nut. No. Well, we should probably yeah, give him a gun. We should probably get out of here soon. Yeah, we should probably get um, out but of here. I, yeah. I, I suppose I should soon, mention like, when the the know. former prime minister of Russia is suggesting that there could be a nuclear conflict, it, it's worth at least a mention at the end of the podcast before we leave, um, just in case. Yeah, he's been doing um, this but for a with while, Dmitry yeah. Medvedev, uh, just this this week uh, today, Medvedev, Medvedev, Medvedev. Yeah, I said it was fast. Medvedev. If it's the former uh, leader of Russia, you should at least pronounce it right. Well, you uh, know, why start? You now? told me he's just an asshole on, on Telegram, and we don't have to he take is. his threat seriously. Um, no, but but he didn't make a threat so much as suggest that if Russia loses this conventional mm-hmm. conflict, that we should at least take into consideration what that might portend. That there has never been a nuclear power that has lost a battle of this sort. And I think he also referred to this as somehow existential for Russia, mm-hmm. but that if they lose, there could be a nuclear conflict because they lost, which, you know, make of that what you will. Uh, gentlemen, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this, Moynihan. I know you, you're you somewhat dismissive uh, of these conclusions. Well, it presumes one analysis. thing. Yeah, it, would, it pre- presumes one thing, that Medvedev believes himself, and this is the problem with the Kremlin leadership and ex-leadership is they're so disconnected from the people of Russia. And you can't really tell what the people of Russia think because it's a dictatorship. It's not an autocracy. It's not an authoritarian. It's a dictatorship. There's You cannot open a newspaper. You cannot open a TV station. You cannot criticize the government. You will go to jail. So we don't really, we don't have a good handle on, on public opinion. It's much harder to do there. But what all of this presumes is that we're looking at the board of risk and not looking at real people mm. and real societies um, that have been choked. Uh, you know, I mean, people don't, people say it didn't have any effect. It's not true. The sanctions do have a significant effect, um, particularly to the rich people too, by the way, to the, the oligarchs and whose vast wealth has been, has been 
you know, uh, cut by like 90% because all of their money's in London or Italy and in boats and in villas and the rest mm. of it. But it presumes that when when Russia comes to a point where they have to, where they have to, um, you know, say uncle and, and give up, and that's what he's putting the situation to be one of a defeat, it would, it would be one where there's 150,000 dead young boys. Um, for what? For a little territorial grab that a megalomaniac like Putin desired. Um, and it presumes that people, that, that those voices you hear on Russian television, which are very, very carefully selected by, by the regime, um, are the voice of the Russian people, that they'll want to continue with this in a total destruction because they lost the strip of land that they wanted to gain mm. and they couldn't take Donbass or they couldn't keep Crimea or whatever it might be. Um, there's a lot of other factors there. And, you know, they just had a little bit of breakout. The Russians have been actually doing quite, quite well recently, unfortunately. Um, and I think they're a little more confident than they've been. But they're also General Ziap. They're also the North Vietnamese. They're willing to throw bodies at something and don't give two shits about how many people die. That's how you win wars. That's why, ha ha ha, America loses them all. No, actually, we actually care about casualties and understand that in a democratic system, um, for all of its faults that get us into places like Iraq, and uh, I wouldn't say Afghanistan, Iraq, the, the death count is actually something that a president's going to pay attention to. The dictator doesn't have to pay attention to that. They don't care. So they'll, they'll, they'll now conscript people who don't know you know, which end of a gun is which and, uh, you know, say, we're going to throw you as cannon fodder. And there's been videos and intercepted phone calls and things like that of people saying, we're just fucking cannon fodder at this point. And, you know, it's the Wagner group that you can't, it, those are prisoners that have been let out of prison. Like, this is not a good situation for them right now. But as far as like the total utter destruction, what that would call for, that means that Russia, they, they're, they're not stupid. They do understand that threats work, but they also understand that a n nuclear exchange would lead to the end of Russia uh, forever. Forever. It, just, it would never exist in the way that it exists now. Um, and, and if they want it to kind of exist, they better not do something like that. Russia, Because you have all of NATO against you. You have all of the free world against you. This is not going to end well for them. It would be bad for everybody in humanity, but they're a little smarter than they let on. It's a threat, obviously. Russia lost in Afghanistan um, in the late 80s, and somehow there wasn't a nuclear war. We did not win in either Korea or Vietnam. And there's and like people died. Lots of people. You can see their monuments um, uh, on uh, on the National Mall. Um, and uh, we did not use nuclear weapons. There's nothing that says a superpower with nuclear weapons involved in a war are going to use nuclear weapons if the war doesn't go out the way they, they think it's going to go out. It, we actually, it's never happened. Yeah. Well, in, in Korea, there was the threat. There, there, there was uh, a, 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 you ended with, with a firing from Truman, a threat of, um, or Eisenhower to a threat of uh, nuclear uh, warfare. But anyway, yeah, I don't think, I, I think that it's, it's, it's a, I mean, you don't have nuclear weapons in your arsenal, unless you're willing to not use them, but threaten people with them. Mm -hmm. What's the point if you don't? You, the whole point of them is to make people, you know, their knees knock and say, oh my God, and think of that future. Do you want large, very well-armed, you know, with, with reasonably sized militaries, pretty big, you know, comparatively, to say we can do whatever we want anywhere. And if you try to fight back, we're going to say, well, nuclear war. 
I mean, you you got to call people's bluff on this, or you just give them uh, a, a, an open ticket to to behave monstrously as they've been behaving. Because that nuclear war, I know the people like the Michael Traces of the world, if that happened, they would blame the West, not the people that invaded the sovereign country, which is, you know, my presumption. But we, I see that a lot of that rhetoric is out there that don't provoke them into doing X or Y. Don't provoke them. Are you fucking mad? Don't provoke the country that has been systematically destroying an independent country and murdering its civilians torturing people, torture chambers pulled up all over the place. This is not gruel propaganda. This is not black propaganda from World War I. This is really happening. You need to be Scott Ritter. You need to be a child molester and a sociopath to believe that this stuff is invented by the West or something. Uh, it's not. No, live on Earth. This is a, a, a country that's been invaded and a country that thought it was going to be like a hot knife through butter, and it wasn't. So what do you do? So you want to keep going? We're going to, we're going to, there's going to be a nuclear exchange. With whom? Germany? United States? I mean, the thing about it is you hate to say this because you don't want it to happen, but these are the calculations that have to be considered. And this is what they're, they're considering when they talk about stuff like this. I mean, by the way, you don't put this policy on Telegram. I mean, you talk about this in like, you know, in behind closed doors in the Kremlin. And there's no universe say, where there hasn't be been a conversation about this where he, no, it's he, hasn't, he hasn't had yes. approval explicit approval to to be able to post something like this oh of course of course of course of course i mean no one's going to say no stop threatening the west that's that you you also by the way you can telegraph that stuff on telegram through somebody who was once your puppet and is no longer the leader so you can say oh it's an independent actor but you the people in langley i think have an understanding of what that telegram message means God, is it is there any single moment in the last twenty years, maybe forty years of presidential debates that's any more ironic than Barack Obama to Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney. the eighties called yeah. they want their foreign policy back? That that paired with the, the like, hot mic, the the hot mic with, <laughs> with with Medvedev, where he says, "Just yeah. give me a little more time after the election, I'll have more flexibility." Like, yeah. I mean, granted, you know, at the time things were different and one can't tell the future, but things. Oh, I was on the side of this was going to happen. I mean, there are people, by the way, you know, that were making this argument um, long before 2012. I mean, when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 during the campaign in August, when Joe Biden, like said, this will not happen under uh, an Obama presidency. Absolutely will not. We are going to like, he didn't say draw a red line, but he said everything but that. Like They just said that about Syria. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was later about Syria. Nice uh, but like that, like this obviously, self-evidently would not happen under an Obama administration. It's a sign mm-hmm. of the Bush's uh, it, it, weakness that it's happening here with Georgia. We are all Georgians now. Um, as many- Until 2014 and when this all began. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can say like, oh, it was the Maidan stuff, but you need to have a conspiratorial mind and just say, oh, that was p- purely a product of, you know, Western collusion and the rest of it. It's just like, this is Chomsky nonsense. This is what people do forever. And they'll send me the same fucking stupid articles over and over again and never read, like we talk about with, you know, the Florida stuff, never read the other side that will tell you in very cold, sober terms, particularly from Ukrainian sources that, uh, no, 
No, you can you can say the white helmets were a you know a Western psyop. You can say this is the one thing that's true about anything in the the past you know 150 years. Anything that happens, there is a, another side writing, usually convincingly, by the way, that it didn't. Uh, it's not hard to be convincing about these things um, because you're not seeing the full picture, and you know, like it's not a trial where you hear all the evidence and say, "Oh, I'm on their side." Someone's you know presenting a very small package of this is what happened in Ukraine and we are responsible in every step of the way. Uh, these are also the same people that say everything on the global stage is America's responsibility. There's a certain point where it's like, that's too coincidental. You just know at no point, it's what I always say about conspiracy theories, nobody ever believes just one. You know, nobody says 9-11 was an inside job. Moon landing was fake. Are you fucking crazy? What's wrong with you? Like, no, they're all in the, it's all, it's a mindset. And they're giving you a sort of boring, no one's ever surprising you. Like, I mean, you can say the Ann Applebaum, you can say somebody sent me an interesting thing, a message I responded to actually today about, they mentioned Ann Applebaum being on John Stewart's show and said it was actually pretty interesting. And Stewart was pretty interesting. Um, there's somebody who's very skeptical of these things, I think, like, like we are. But Applebaum's an interesting person in the sense that like, I, she's been all over the map in a lot of this stuff. I mean, she's been very, very consistent in Ukraine, but like, you know, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to get. I think if I see, you know, you know, Michael Tracy, I know what I'm going to get in any of these issues. It's always the same. Anyway. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.